new way to measure progress in digital transformation, the top systems of 2024, and legal considerations for digital transformations. Those are just a few things we're going to cover today in episode number 136 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And joining me as always is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited for today's episode. Yeah, thank you for being here. I'm excited as well. We've got a lot of stuff to cover today. If you don't know, though, uh, Transformation Ground Control is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology sides of transformation. And today we're going to cover a bunch of stuff. We're going to start off with some questions from the audience that we're going to answer. We're going to get into some hot topics, including new ways to measure progress in digital transformation, as well as digital transformations in amusement parks. So if you want to know what goes on behind the scenes of all the scary roller coasters and stuff you may or may not enjoy doing at amusement parks, you can learn about what digital transformation does to enable that uh, customer experience. And then later in the show, we're going to have our first guest, uh, Marcus Harris, who's an attorney at Taft Law. He'll be on the show talking about the legal considerations for digital transformation. We're going to get into stuff like uh, open AI and what the intellectual property uh, considerations are there, uh, software contracts, implementation contracts, how to negotiate uh, those sorts of contracts. Basically, all the legal stuff that you'll ever want to know, at least in a one podcast episode, I should say, uh, we're going to cover in that segment with Marcus later in the show. And then finally, last but not least, we're going to get to the top 10 ERP systems of 2024. So we just released that uh, top 10 ranking, which is our technology agnostic and independent ranking that has no outside influence from software vendors. It's strictly our ranking based on a number of criteria that we'll get to here later in the show. So stick around for that as well. So before we get to those other segments here uh, today, you've uh, potentially, actually before you jump into the questions, I'm going to throw a curveball here at the audience. Uh, if you haven't already, it's uh, my new book, The Final Countdown, was just released uh, last week. You can find that and order it at thefinalcountdown.com. Uh, that'll take you to the Amazon page where you can order it. You can order it in paperback, hardcover, and also electronic format. So if you haven't already, order The Final Countdown. It's my new book. I uh, love love to get uh, your feedback on it as well. So, with that shameless plug out of the way, Kyler, what what sorts of uh, questions do you have in the question jar for us here today? Yeah, well, building on that shameless plug, um, also we'd love to hear your feedback, Eric Wood. I know um, via reviews. Uh, so, some reviews we'll be sharing on future episodes. Uh, so, if you do have a review, go ahead and post it on Amazon. If you um, enjoyed the book or want to give any sort of feedback, um, we'll be talking through what some people thought about it in future episodes. So definitely encourage you to 
to leave a review and, and big congratulations to Eric, not only on the launch, but also being on the best seller list in a variety of categories, including business and finance, which is a pretty big category. So um, kudos to you, Eric. It's a great book. Um, very excited to, to be able to feature it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what the audience thinks too, uh, as, as we get some reviews in, I'll be, I'm really curious to hear what people think of it. So uh, thank you for that shameless plug. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of the shameless plugs. Um, let's get into some of the questions from our user base. So I have my question jar here. If you haven't joined us on Ground Control before, um, what we do is we actually take questions from all of Eric's social media as well as third stage social media. You can post your question um, to prioritize with hashtag Ask Eric, and I will pull it and I'll actually ask him in real time. He's never seen any of these questions, um, so he's uh, definitely kind of in the hot seat to ask them. Also, uh, turning to our audience that's joining us right now, you can leave them in the comments and we will um, be sure to address them on future episodes. We also want to hear your answers too. Um, so definitely encourage you to, to leave your feedback. Uh, we really are a community and network here at Third Stage and a lot of our great insights and independent advice comes from you in the audience as well. So thank you for that engagement. So with that, let's pull out a few of these. All right. Um, this is specifically about SAPS for HANA and the failure epidemic around SAP that we've been seeing not only in the marketplace, but with our, our current clients. So this user said, I don't agree with your observation regarding S4 HANA cancellations. The major issue why companies are running into problems with SAP is because they don't want to pay the hourly rate for top talent. So I thought I would give you a chance to respond to that and see what our audience thought about um, the hot topic of SAP S4 HANA failures. Yeah, um, I I agree and disagree at the same time with the comment. So I agree that a lot of companies out there don't want to pay what it takes to get qualified S4 HANA consultants. There is a sort of a do-it-yourself mentality that some organizations tend to have, which is you know, let's just go hire a bunch of contractors for as cheap as we can, and then we'll manage those contractors to uh, handle our entire S4 HANA implementation. Um, I don't, I really, sometimes I don't know what to say when people say they disagree with an observation I have in, in the video. I do have opinions in the video for sure, but there's observations about our clients and what our clients are experiencing. And so it's, I, I don't know what to say to the fact that he disagrees with what I see with clients, but there are facts that are coming from our clients, which is things like S4 HANA doesn't fit their needs. S4 HANA is not flexible enough to fit their needs. Um, it's a very complex product. It's very risky. It costs a lot. It's taking them a lot of time. And in many cases, or in some cases, we're seeing distressed projects that are reaching out to us saying, hey, we are in trouble with our S4 HANA implementation. Um, can you help us out of it? And in some cases, uh, we end up, not we, but they end up canceling the project because they just, the project is so far gone. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of reasons for sure. And he does bring up a really good one that I don't mention in the video, which is low cost resources and not finding the right talent. And, and there is a talent shortage for sure in the SAP space, as well as other, other segments as well, uh, just given the demand for all the projects that are happening at the moment. So, um, great comment. Um, but I, I stand by the observations of our clients and what, what we're seeing and hearing from our client base is what largely what that video is based on. Yeah, and I guess evolving that question, if you are going through an SAP S4 HANA or considering going through an SAP S4 HANA implementation, um, should you look for those internal competencies within your IT um, talent pool? 
Yeah, actually, another great, that's a great point too, in that, you know, we tend to get so focused, even in just in that question, we're focused on outside consultants, you know, who are the best technical consultants to help you with an implementation? And that's an important question to ask. But the reason why a lot of organizations are going down this do it yourself route, route is not only to save money, that's part of it, but it's also so that they can have ownership of the project. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with a company saying we want to have ownership of our own digital transformation. In fact, I think more more companies should do that and not enough companies do it. So um, yeah, you need good consultants, you need good outside help, but just as important, maybe even more important is how do you manage that internally and how do you build those competencies in-house so that the consultants can go away? And ultimately that's what you want. You want us all to go away at some point. Um, as much as I love our clients and our clients love us, you know, at some point you overstay your welcome and, and you don't want these projects to go on into perpetuity and create this learned helplessness that organizations have with their consultants. And even though that's self-serving in many cases it, for, for the consultant, it's not good for the organization to have that much dependency on, on the outside consultant. So I think you do have to build that in-house capability to some degree. You're not going to build it overnight. You're not going to be as versed as an outside consultant, but you can, you can start to move that direction. Yeah, really excellent insight. Thank you for that. And thank you for the question. You are allowed to disagree with Eric on his comments. We will bring it up. That's what makes the conversation um, really valuable, independent, and important. So this is a good kind of setup for our conversation or your overall um, observations later of the top systems of 2024, which is you know a huge release uh, for our community. What is your definition of small, medium, large businesses in your review? Yeah. So just in rough terms, um, the way we categorize it in, in terms of revenue largely is looking at organizations under a hundred million in revenue are small, smaller, smaller companies, companies that are in that 100 to $1 billion range roughly are considered midsize in our criteria. And then over a billion is considered larger. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can interpret that. A lot of people would say, well, if you're a $50 million company, that that $20 million company or whatever, that that should be the threshold for small versus midsize. We try to keep it simple and sort of round it off there at about a hundred million for the threshold for small to midsize, and then a billion for the threshold from midsize to large. So that's, uh, and that's the hard thing with the ranking that we'll get to later yeah. in this episode. It's hard to it's hard to rank universally. We do do it, obviously, but if you're a small company or a really large company, you're going to end up with a you might end up with a totally different top ten list or short list for sure. But that's our attempt to sort of look globally at all companies of all sizes and all different industries and having a general ranking that we'll get to later today. Yeah, and as we always say here at Third Stage, it truly depends, right? Depends on your business objectives, your requirements, all of those different things. Um, as well. So understanding that is really the first step to see where you, you fall within that category. Right. This is one of my, we've been waiting weeks to get to this one. I'm so excited. You mean you have? Uh, this, <laughs> you, yeah. This you've is, seen it in um, there for all the time. I know, right? I tried not to cherry pick. I never cherry pick. I let fate drive the the um, overall questions here, but this one's a good one. It's um, a comment, but I think it's a, a good one to kind of um, look at. If an ERP transition um, doesn't scare the hell out of you, you don't know enough to be doing them. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, well, I I there's part of me that agrees that I think that's you do want to have a, a healthy amount of fear and and skepticism, 
but you know, you also don't want to go so far over the edge that you're just terrified and you're, you're in analysis paralysis and you're during the headlight frozen, don't know what to do. That's not, that's not helpful either. So you got to find that middle ground, you know, how can you be just scared enough? I think the key though, is that a lot of organizations have this like overconfidence or just a total blind spot in terms of what it's going to take. And that's a, that's a role we, we often help fill is, you know, you know, not, not to bring the, not to be the Debbie Downers or the buzzkill of the party, so to speak, but we sort of have to be, it's sort of like, yeah, okay. There's a lot of possibilities here, a lot of great upside potential. Um, you can and will achieve that upside potential, but to get there, here's what it looks like. And here's sort of the pain that you're going to, you know, we're going to have to go through to get there. Sort of like, you know, when you envision, if you're an athlete and you envision yourself winning a game or winning a race or whatever it is, um, that's great. You need to visualize and imagine that and set that as your target. But if you then say it's going to be easy and I'm, I'm not going to worry too much about it. And then you don't train and you don't go through the pain that it takes to prepare for the race or the match or the, or the game, you're going to fail. And that's what a lot of organizations end up, end up doing is they look at the end state, but they don't understand the pain that they're going to have to go through as an organization to get there. And it doesn't, it's not overwhelming pain. It's not pain that can't be overcome but it's messy and it's more painful than most software vendors and technical implementers will let on. So I think you just have to have a, what you would call, you use the term all the time that we, we actually stole it or you stole it from one of our own team members. I can't remember who it was, but the healthy skepticism or the professional skepticism is that, oh, was it Clifford yeah. in South Africa? Yeah. yeah. Is yeah. it weird? I knew what you were going to say. That was kind of uh, like, I already yeah, knew who you were going to say. <laughs> That, that means we've hosted a lot of these shows together and we've worked together for a long time and know each other really well. That's probably what that means. But so I wouldn't say it's yes. weird. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But Clifford Martin, and if you haven't seen um, his content, definitely go search our YouTube channel um, as he, he heads a lot of our great conversations around the importance of professional skepticism when it comes to working with partners. So um, definitely a, gr a great observation. Yeah. Well, I think this is a great kind of platform to talk through some of our hot topics um, and what we look at. So I'm, I'm excited to ask you about that um, here in just a few. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to get to those too. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to get to two hot topics for discussion. One is a new way to measure progress in digital transformation. And then we're also going to talk about digital transformations in amusement parks too. And then later in the show, we'll have Marcus Harris on joining us to talk about legal considerations for digital transformation. We'll get into stuff like contracts and procurement and uh, intellectual property protection, confidentiality of data within open AI, stuff like that. I know it doesn't sound that fascinating right now as I describe it, but it, it, it's a, he's a fascinating guy and, and it's fascinating stuff that you need to know if you're going through a transformation as it relates to the legal considerations for digital transformation. That's with Marcus Harris from TAF Law. And then finally, last but not least, we will uh, go through our top 10 ERP systems of 2024, which was just released not too long ago, and we'll, we'll dive into that. So stick around. We've got a lot more to cover. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. 
If you're interested in joining a high-growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out wherever you listen or watch. So we just went through some questions from the audience, Kyler, but now we want to dive into a couple of these really interesting hot topics you have in store for us. What's what's on your mind here? Yeah, well, let's um, accelerate, if you will, um, into digital transformation in amusement parks and the use of virtual assistants, uh, specifically powered by Google Cloud's generative AI, which Google Tr Cloud, as we all know, is trying to push into that generative AI and, and take over um, chat GPT or smaller open AI uh, sources. Um, so I, when I first saw this headline, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going on any roller coaster that has any virtual assistance powering it, but don't worry. Don't be alarmed. Right. It's not so much about roller coaster operations as it is, is optimizing business operations. So specifically in um, this announcement, we're looking at Six Flags Entertainment Corporation, which is actually the world's largest theme park company, which I thought Disney was. But so that's an, an interesting fact just in there. And it's also the largest operator of water parks in North America. Um, so it, it actually announced recently that it's working with Google Cloud to enhance visitor experience and optimize business operations. And specifically, the system they're working with is Google Cloud's Vortex AI conversation um, and other services to kind of accelerate the digital transformation at Six Flags specifically. So what this looks like from a day-to-day -day operations um, is the, the virtual assistant actually offers a new level of convenience when you visit the park for guests. And uh, what it does is it will guide visitors through kind of planning their parks and personalized recommendations. If you're really into scary roller coasters, you're more kind of, you know, teacups like um, our, my young kids are. And it, it answers uh, questions really quickly. So if you're able to ask, you know, questions that are actually put in there by the coding and reduces the need for interacting interacting with live agents. So kind of takes the resources of bottom line needs for that out of the park. Um, so the goal of this kind of state of the art solution and integration is streamlining operations and boosting productivity and efficiency. Uh, so they've, they've really kind of taken an interesting approach of not only looking at generative AI, but actually announcing it with a, a, an industry titan like Google. Um, so that specific announcement is really what I wanted to kind of ask you about. This is a really cool kind of case study around an interesting industry and the use of things like virtual assistants, AI, generative AI. But we've also kind of seen now titans in specific industries like Six Flags coupling with titans in the technology industry to kind of come say, this is a safe and almost legitimate option, right? Because we are utilizing these tech titans to kind of build this infrastructure and kind of trying to push out um, the little guys such as ChatGPT or OpenAI. So I, I wondered kind of what your predictions were about the evolution of big tech and working with big industry to come be kind of almost the SAP S4HANA uh, or Oracle, if you will, of generative AI? Oh, yeah, great question. I I had I guess I hadn't really thought of 
thought of it in that context before, but I, but I have wondered just in general, if, you know, with all the hype around chat GPT over the last year or so, um, you know, is that going to be the, between chat GPT and open AI, is that the model that's going to win out in terms of the, the generative AI, uh, dominance that they, they tend to have. And it seems like a lot of the big tech vendors are, are integrating with open AI. Is that different? So is that, is this case study different than that? So they're not, are they creating a separate AI model or, or is it somehow linked or is it not linked at all to open AI? There's no mention of open AI. Like it certainly could on the back end, but the branding is really around Google cloud and their vortex AI conversation okay. is what it's called. Um, so it's very similar to a lot of the bigger AI platforms that we've seen as far as coming out with that, whether it be Google, Facebook, all of the, the different kind of Microsoft virtual assistants, which we talked about a few few weeks back. Um, so I don't see any mention of OpenAI in that integration, but that doesn't mean that. And of course, if anyone in the comments knows about this roller coaster if you will, in the industry of kind of movement around generative AI, please share, because I'd love to know kind of your thoughts around that as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how, um, you know, some of these tech companies are are partnering and, and providing solutions um, amongst one another in the tech space, but also obviously with their, their larger customers too. What's also interesting though, is in your case study in that, that overview you gave, which is a really good overview, um, it, it also sounds like there's a there's a sort of a focus on customer experience and customer journey and you know with the the chat bots and things like that that um you know could affect and help and enhance that that customer experience i think the good news with all of it is that it's sort of focused it seems like it's focused on the right things in terms of what they want to get out of their technology and they have a pretty spe specific yeah specific uh use that they want to use technology for Definitely a great experience. If you've been to Six Flags or if you experienced any of um, these opportunities for optimization and customer experience in a theme park setting, we'd, we'd love to hear kind of your experience. So um, so that's, you know, a, a great case study of, of how it's utilized and kind of gone through the whole fruition of selection and implementation. So let's back up a little bit and talk about specific measurement. So this is actually from McKenzie's uh, quarterly report on uh, a, a lot of things about digital transformation. It's actually a great article that we'll, we'll have to share in future episodes as well. But basically um, they talk about the pillars of successful transformation. And a lot of this is really complementary to what you talk about in um, the final countdown. So, you know, another shameless plug to get the book, but this kind of talks about all along the same lines of how do you create a whole holistic digital strategy. And one, one specific focus area that I want to talk to you about is this approach called rocks, pebble, sand. Um, and that really means initiatives of all size. And what they say is roughly 55% of transformation value comes from small initiatives that represent an average less than 0.5% of full potential. So when you're looking at specifically measurement, there comes to be a lot of value over those smaller initiatives, though they're not, they're not producing the most on the, the front end of the full potential of the transformation. When we're talking about, you know, boosting revenue by, you know, 2% or something like that. That's an actual goal. But it sounds like there's an opportunity to look at that rock 
pebble sand approach of initiatives of all size to effectively measure the potential or the value of your transformation. So I thought that was a really interesting concept that they put together from a strategic standpoint. And I, I wanted to ask you about it today. Yeah, well, I'm glad you bring it up. I, I was not aware of this study or of the of that sort of a metric or categorization of business value with digital transformations, but it kind of makes sense and it kind of fits um, a philosophy we have, or at least an option that we tend to espouse to our clients and even in this podcast and other thought leadership we put out, which is, you know, you don't have to go f- swing for the fences and go for this big, massive, you know, overnight change to your business with technology. You can take that more incremental approach. And and I know that's not exactly what you're talking about here, but it sort of brings me back to that incremental approach of where can you get these low hanging fruit areas of high value that are also lower risk and lower cost potentially in terms of making these improvements over time. And then over time, you start to add up these 0.5% uh, or less sorts of incremental improvements. And that adds up, that can add up to a lot of money, but it also means you can get there in a way that could be a lot less painful than say, you know, ripping out your entire backend system to potentially get a five to 10% improvement in, in, you know, some of those key metrics or areas of value. Um, that that's probably the higher risk, uh, higher cost approach for some, it may make sense. It may, may, it may mean that there's so much value that you're missing out on that. You do need a a bigger, more aggressive approach to your digital transformation, but it's a good reminder that you, there's sort of a continuum that you need to figure out where your organization is in terms of how much, how much change are you willing to accept and how much business value can you realistically expect as part of your digital transformation. Yeah, and and that key characteristic that we talk about, those incremental wins or those incremental changes, are one of their five categories of businesses that have achieved a a successful transformation. So though it might not seem as much on paper of that 0.5% or half a percent of value, it is something that, like you said, leads up to a bigger incremental value or the the bigger objective of the transformation. So um, there's some other uh, key characteristics that I want to talk through next week. Um, So stay tuned, little teaser there, uh, and we'll kind of dive into a few other things throughout the report. But I definitely think it's a a great kind of foundation for the conversations that we're going to have today about system selection and then also with um, the, the legal strategies about building that strong foundation to achieve true value of your transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And it talks about, we'll get into business value as well as mitigating risk uh, in that conversation too. And uh, joining us for that conversation next will be Marcus Harris, who's an attorney at Taft Law. And he'll be on with us talking about some of the legal considerations for digital transformation. And then later in the show, after Marcus is on, we will also get into the top 10 ERP systems of 2024. So find out where your favorite software vendor lands in our top 10 ranking. Uh, here later in today's episode. And we'll also talk about uh, some of the vendors worthy of note that didn't make the top 10 list. Um, there's a lot of software vendors out there. In fact, more more software vendors did not make our top 10 list than did. So uh, that doesn't mean you should rule them out or not consider them. It just means we're going to highlight the 10 that we think are the best. So we'll get to that later in the show. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Marcus Harris talking about legal considerations for digital transformation. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, your host here on Transformation Ground Control. I want to personally invite you to our upcoming Stratosphere 2023 event. It's a conference that we host every year. It's a tech agnostic conference. 
features a number of independent technology agnostic speakers, both from third stage consulting, as well as from outside our company. We try to bring in the, the industry's brightest minds and the most objective minds to help you learn the things you need to know to make your transformation successful. We cover everything from digital strategy to software evaluation, to change management, to program management, to process improvement, data and architecture, migration, all that kind of stuff we're going to cover here in Digital Stratosphere. It's going to be October 4th, 5th, and 6th in Denver, Colorado. I'll be there. Kyler will be there, our co-host here on Transformation Ground Control, as well as others will be there. So be sure to check us out. We'll also have great opportunities for networking, for peer networking, as well as networking with speakers. We're also going to have great entertainment too. We'll have some happy hour networking events as well as live music from that 80s band, which is uh, my favorite cover band. They play all 80s stuff. Uh, so come enjoy that as well while you're, while you're at it. It's all happening in Denver, October 4, 5, and 6. Uh, you can go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about the event. Be sure to register by August 15th to get the early bird discount, which is uh, fairly significant. Again, stratosphere2023.com. Learn more about it. Hope to see you there. And uh, in the meantime, hope you enjoy the rest of this episode of Transformation Ground Control. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, where it streams every Wednesday. So be sure to check us out. Um, next is a guest who's probably earns the award for most appearances on this podcast, other than you, Kyler. Um, you're, you're obviously the the top, the number one slot, but the, coming in at number two, if I were to guess, it's probably our next guest. In fact, I'm almost positive it is our next guest. He's been on several times. He was on, he might've been on our very first episodes of this, of this podcast too, if I remember correctly. If not, he was on one of the first two or three and he's been back several times since then because he always has so much to talk about. And every time he's on, I learn so much uh, in chatting with him. And I think he, he covers a topic that not enough uh, organizations think about. You know, we all want to think about the utopia of what technology can do for us. But as we talked about earlier in this show, uh, before the break, uh, we oftentimes don't want to think about the pain or the the messiness that goes along with it. And uh, someone's got to do it. So we're going to have Marcus on the show to talk about some of the legal considerations, it, things that you need to be aware of, legal risk and, and protections you can put in place as it relates to your digital transformation. So uh, uh, Marcus from Taft Law, thank you for joining us here today. Hey, Eric, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be back and I'm really excited to, to, to do the digital stratosphere later this year. I think the topics um, that we're going to talk about certainly today um, are kind of a preview of what we're going to do uh, later later this year. Um, and so, like I said, I'm excited to, to be here today and to talk to not only you, but field questions from uh, the audience. You know, I, I, like you said, I'm an attorney here at Taft. Taft is a national law firm of about 850 lawyers with a very deep bench. Uh, and they're particularly deep. We are particularly deep in technology. Um, intellectual property, uh, patents, uh, science-related issues. So you know, we're, we're well-suited to, to talk about these things today. And I've got a lot of experience in this area, having worked in-house at a couple of large international software software companies. Yeah, and that's that's uh, actually a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. It, it, you have a unique perspective, having sort of worked both, both sides of the table. Um, you, you sort of know the inner workings of software and technology companies, and obviously you represent uh, your clients um, sometimes on the, on the other side 
uh, of the software uh, company. That's a pretty unique perspective that most don't have. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, we'll we'll represent large software vendors in multi-million dollar transactions and and generate contract templates for startup uh, ERP vendors. We're doing that now, and then we also represent a variety of of different size companies with their you know, software acquisition implementation. Um, you know, we take them from from zero to a hundred um, and, and and provide you know whatever kind of comprehensive legal services they need depending on the budget which is often dictated by how much they're actually spending on the software product. If, you know, you, you approach something much differently if you're spending 100,000 versus 14 or $18 million, and it's a much different type of legal representation. One of the other things that we do, which I think adds a lot of perspective to this, this, this conversation in particular, in our representation in general, in the ERT, ERP space, and this is one of the ways we met, is that we, we uh, litigate these issues and we deal with failed ERP implementations um, today, I say we probably do more on the client side as far as the representation is involved, representing clients that have been victimized by, you know, oversold, overhyped, not fully baked products um, that got that got duped during the the sales process by maybe overeager salespeople. Um, and then we've also in the past represented a variety of different software vendors in connection with allegations of of, of failed implementation, of breach, and fraud, and negligent misrepresentation. So that's a pretty well-rounded perspective to be able to talk um, about a variety of the nuances and the legal issues that, that come up in these deals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've, you've uh, seen some pretty gnarly situations and gnarly legal uh, contractual situations over the years, I imagine, uh, which we'll, we'll kind of get into here today. Yeah, absolutely. So what is, um, while I ask you this question, I'm actually going to pop on the screen a, a little, uh, some information about our upcoming Digital Stratosphere Conference. It's October 4th through the 6th in Denver. Um, you can go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about this conference. But not only are you speaking at this conference, but uh, Taft is also a, a co-sponsor along with Third Stage uh, for this event, which we're really excited about. We were just talking before we, we went live how exciting it is to do an in-person event again after a few yeah. years of not having done it, at least in, in the case of Stratosphere. This is our first post-COVID in-person event really looking forward to it. And um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be speaking about or what topic you'll be covering at Stratosphere? Yeah, I mean, this year, I really want to get into the ins and outs of what the contract negotiation process is like with respect to a typical ERP project, you know, when you engage attorneys, um, how often in the process, um, how to use attorneys to mitigate the likelihood that you're going to have problems what the contract negotiation process looks like, what are some of the key issues in those contracts that you've got to really focus on to ensure that you know, you, you're, you're setting yourself for, up for success. Um, I wanna talk about how to, how to mitigate failure and then really you know, what to do when you're faced with a problematic ERP implementation, um, what steps you need to take to try to get that thing back on track. And then from a collateral perspective, and really, talking about you know some of the bigger issues in the contracts i want to talk about certainly intellectual property um, some of the substantive representations and warranties that you need to look for and then i want to talk about um, the, the 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 massive impact that that ai and and, and chat gpt and, and, and platforms like that are having on the erp space and some of the unique challenges that those present from a contractual perspective and what i'll be covering or, or share a little bit more about what i'll part of what i'll be covering um, is actually a, a keynote based on my new book, um, which, which was just released this last weekend. So if you haven't 
already. You can scan the QR code here on the screen in front of you to uh, order the book. Uh, it ships worldwide. You can get it electronically or in paperback or hardcover copy. Uh, my keynote at Stratosphere will dive into some of the major themes of the book and talking and focusing on primarily digital strategy. Um, so be sure to check that out. Um, and if you haven't already, I encourage you to, to buy the book. Uh, it's on the bestseller list in a few different categories. So I appreciate everyone who has bought it already. But if you haven't, you can get it here uh, ASAP by ordering it uh, since it's on sale now. Um, so I'm going to stall a little bit while, we, while we're waiting for Marcus to come back on the stream here. Um, but one of the things I'll, I'll sort of dive into and sort of set the stage uh, while Marcus is, is rejoining here is that um, we're going to cover today a few different topics uh, related to the legal side of transformation. Um, some of the things I had in mind, and I'd love to get the audience's uh, feedback here as well, um, but some of the things I was going to talk about with Marcus and some of the questions I want to ask him are, are, first of all, what some of the biggest challenges are from a legal perspective that he sees with with digital transformations and his his own client teams. What are some of the biggest struggles that they um, are are struggling with? Um, that's one of the things we want to cover um, here today with with uh, Marcus. And then another topic we are going to cover as well. We want to get into um, uh, intellectual property too, which is a, a pretty big deal. I, I'm not an intellectual property expert by any means. I know it's not the sexiest thing to talk about, but it is really important as you think about digital transformation, especially in today's day and age of artificial intelligence and ChatGPT and whatnot. Um, that creates a lot of uh, a, a lot of challenges that um, organizations have to think about the the or they should be thinking about the intellectual property side of things. Um, so we're going to talk about that. You know, what is ChatGPT? What is custom? Uh, what is custom ERP software or open source ERP software? What are some of the intellectual property uh, considerations there? So. Uh, all that being said, I just ran out of things to stall with, and it looks like you're back, Marcus. Um, but I guess just to start, Marcus, what are some of the, the biggest legal challenges that you see your clients struggling with at the moment? Well, you know, look, in the, in the context of an ERP project or an ERP implementation, I think one of one of the biggest issues that we got that we that we see on a on a pretty regular basis is you know, the, the continued push for this cloud migration. And I think certainly cloud makes sense. And um, it's it's really a direction that I think if it makes sense for your company, it's something that you need to seriously consider doing. But I also don't think you need to throw the bait, meaning really that, you know, if you've got an on-premise solution that really works for you, and that's a delivery model or a usage model that is something that you can still utilize, you know, you don't necessarily need to fix it if it isn't broken. And I say that for a variety of reasons. One, I think that there is a perception that really is perpetuated by software vendors that these cloud contracts are low risk, that they're, they need to be consistent, that they need to be uh, the same across the customer base. And they do that so that they don't have to negotiate them. Um, mm. And so there's a, a huge level of inflexibility, not with all vendors, but certainly a, a large subset of vendors as to the terms and conditions that they will actually be willing to change. And the rationale and reason they have for pushing back is, look, this is a standardized offering across our customer base and, and the contract needs to be consistent for everybody. And if we had to do this for, for you, or if we have to do this for you, then we would have to do it for everybody. And we just can't do that. And that to me is, is, a, is really an untenable position because what it leads to is you 
you know, signing a contract that is less than favorable, that in some ways might shift, you know, all of the risk of that legal or business transaction to you from, from a, you know, a, a legal perspective. So you have unlimited liability. The, the vendor has no liability to you. Um, you're not only are you shifted, the risk is being shifted to you from a legal perspective, but from a business perspective, you're contractually obligated for the success of the project. And that doesn't make any sense. Why are you hiring them? You know, what, what, what's the purpose of, of you engaging with them? If you're the one responsible for the success of the entire project, one of the other things that we see, and this is troubling as well, is the wholesale incorporation of URLs into these documents. So what you get ordered to you via DocuSign is a two-page order form that looks pretty innocuous. In reality, there's about 10 to 15 URLs that each link to a 15-page terms and conditions document that can be updated or modified at any point during your contractual relationship with this vendor. And that is just crazy to me, okay? And to really do this right, you've got to focus on the contract as, it, as a whole, including all the URLs that they stuff in there and try to hide from you. So I mean that that all all of that is a is a huge issue on the ERP front, just from a practical side. We're here with Marcus Harris talking about some legal considerations as it relates to digital transformations and ERP implementations. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success. Turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, streaming to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen or watch to podcasts. Uh, we are here with Marcus Harris from TAF Law talking about some of the legal considerations to keep in mind during your digital transformation and ERP implementation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Great points. And I and I guess um, coming back to the first point you made about um, you know, the, the fact that software vendors create these standard one size fits all contracts. So they don't have to negotiate. If I'm a, let's say I'm a CIO at a $100 million U S turnover or an annual revenue, sort of a company, a hundred million dollars in revenue. I'm a CIO or an IT director. And, um, I'm dealing with, you know, SAP or Oracle, you know, a, a company that has tens of billions in revenue and just massive company compared to me as, as my organization. Do I have, what sort of leverage do I have to do to change that? You know what I mean? Because we get a lot of clients that say we're a tiny fish in the sea, in a big pond or a big sea. Um, can we really push back on some of these terms and conditions? And what, what's your experience been? I mean, you know, that back probably five years ago, I would have said you've got a lot of, a lot of leverage and, and you're going to have a lot of success getting, you know, normal concessions 
that are reasonable and mitigate the risk of that transaction, I would have said that you've got a pretty good chance of doing that if you're spending any you know, reasonable amount of money. Today, I, I think you've got to spend an insane amount of money. You've got to be in the multi-millions in order to, to really have a lot of push and leverage with certain vendors. And so what your strategy needs to be, and, and be clear, I am specifically talking about the, the software side of this transaction, not, not the implementation side yet. Right. Okay. And so if, if you are not spending serious money with this vendor, there's going to be no incentive for them to get off their standard positions and their standard positions are absolutely horrible. Okay. And so what, what you need to do is make a list, you know, have an attorney or your in-house people go through that contract and identify you know, the top five, top 10 things that are the most important to you or the riskiest, really, you know, and, and importance and risk are, are kind of two sides of the same coin. And once you have done that, you can kind of assign a risk rating to them and figure out, okay, if I don't get all 10, which you're probably not going to get, what can I really live with? And what do I really need to push for? You know, you've got to break them down into business issues and legal issues. And the business issues always drive the legal issues. And we like to say, well, you know, all, all issues are really business issues, but pure, you know, business issues, what kind of warranty you're getting? What's the limitation of liability? Um, is there an indemnity obligation? What are they stepping up to as far as reps and warranties and that kind of thing? And make sure that they're substantive and real, because what you want is if it all goes sideways and you've got to litigate this contract, you at least want to have a dog in the fight. Right. And, and you get there by having, you know, subjected them to, you know, a reasonable limitation of liability so you can recover money damages if you need to so that they'll do something. They have an incentive to fix something. There's a warranty and it's got substantive remedies if there's a breach of that warranty. You want to make sure you've got things like that. Um, you know, you've got an indemnity obligation so that if the software causes an issue for you and you get sued by a third party, you they will do something about it and you're not left holding the bag. So, you know, really the way to mitigate that is to pick the big top top five top seven, top 10, whatever it is. Yeah. You may not get everything you want, but if you get the top five or however many, you know, high priority showstoppers, uh, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's not about nuance depending on the, the vendor and the size of the transaction. It's really just that, that it's what, what can we get? You know, what, what's going to make this an easier transaction for us? Right. Um, if you're in a specialized industry like banking, banking or finance or, or whatever it is that you've got, you know, specific requirements, that might be a different situation and you may have some more pool there. Right. So here's a really interesting question from, uh, Rahendra, Rahendra on LinkedIn. Rahendra says, Marcus, what percentage of customers hire legal experts before signing contracts with ERP vendors? Do you have, do you have a sense of that? You know, it's, it's hard to say not, not enough of them to be, to be quite honest with you. There's an old saying in my industry that early legal advice is not expensive. Right. And you know, if you spend, I don't know, it, 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 you know, this, the legal spend has to be proportional to what the business deal size is. But let's say you spend 5% or 10% of the deal size on, on a legal review of the contract. Um, you're going to put yourself in a much better position as, if you didn't, because God forbid, you've got to you know, enforce that contract in some way. You never negotiated it. You're not going to have any success. Right. That contract, every, every paragraph, every comma, every sentence is going to be against you. And you're going to have a pretty hard time you know, we see on a pretty regular basis contracts that come across our desks where there's a failure or some other sort of breach. And you can, you look at this and it's like, well, you spent $5 million. Did you have any look, anybody look at the contract? No, no, we didn't. 
And that, to me, that's just insane. You know? I mean, yeah. The, the risk is. is there. Why not mitigate it? Right. Well, in your internal legal counsel, if you have that, if you're a big enough company to where you have an internal, you know, general counsel or a legal team, you know, that helps, but they generally don't negotiate these kind of contracts every day like you do. So I think that's one of the big things that companies overlook too, is they look at it from a pure T's and C's perspective. And they probably, you know, your internal legal counsel can presumably help with a lot of that, but there's a lot of nuances that are unique to the industry and a lot of gotchas and pitfalls that you wouldn't know just from being an attorney. You would know from being an attorney that does this all the time. And I think that's a, a nuance that a lot of organizations miss out on too. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think any attorney that looks at a commercial contract is going to be able to look at, you know, three or four issues and, and understand that that doesn't seem reasonable. But, you know, the, the great challenge with agreements is particularly in this industry is, you know, is what is there reasonable? Is it market, so to speak? That's not something that you're going to know if you don't do this all the time. And then the other thing that you're not going to know, which is equally as important, is it's easy to see what's in the contract and tell a client it's reasonable or unreasonable or it's a, you know it's risky or not risky. But what about the things that are supposed to be there that are not? And if, if you have no experience in this area, you're not going to even be able to key in on those issues. And that to yeah. me um, is worth you know the, the price that you're going to pay for an attorney review. Yeah. And when you're dealing with these big software companies too, and, and the big um, technical consulting firms, the big system integrators, when you're dealing with those really big companies, you know, we're sort of, we're sort of circling around this topic of leverage too. That's, we haven't used that exact word yet, but um, one thing you have to look at is what kind of leverage do I have with a big massive behemoth in the tech industry? And part of it is the knowledge that, you know, uh, uh, someone like Taft or you, Marcus, could bring to the table. But there's also a leverage that comes with that too that I think is really important. And it, and it comes from hiring companies like Third Stage too, even though we're not attorneys, we're not here to negotiate contracts, but we do provide, part of the reason why clients hire us throughout their digital transformation is to give, to help provide leverage, you know, to where they have ownership and leverage over the project and over their their partners. And you hate, sometimes you hate to think that way. You know, you don't want to think adversarially, but when you're dealing with a two-sided, you know, two-sided contractor, you hope it's two-sided. It may be a one-sided contract, which is even worse, which is sort of yeah. what you're alluding to here. You, you need that leverage and that negotiation leverage. I've, I've seen it with you where a client hires you and it's not just the knowledge you bring. It's the fact that you have an attorney from the outside that's helping you. And that suddenly that changes the dynamics of the relationship and the conversation in general. Well, it really, it really does. And I mean, I think, you know, one of, one of the other tips here is you need to hire experts. Okay. If you don't have the in-house expertise and, you know, the life cycle of these of these products is pretty long, right? And, you know, maybe in your career, if you're at the same company, you do this maybe two or three times in your career, right? Um, maybe if you've jumped around companies, you've done it five, six, seven times. But, but you know, having said that, I mean, you, you may have some, some, some understanding of, of how these things go as an individual professional, but hiring attorneys and hiring consultants that can develop RFPs, RFIs, conduct software demos, develop, you know, scripts, all of that stuff is incredibly important for you to get an understanding of, of you know, what you're about to get into, mitigate, you know, the, the, the risk associated with it. And really, you know, someone that can benchmark, you know, what should what you should be doing against what other people or other companies your size are doing, that's invaluable information. And then, you know, once you've got that empowerment, you know, it gives you realistic expectations as to how that negotiation process is going to go, what you can expect to get or not get. And, you know, 
from a bigger picture, you know, what the implementation process is going to be like, how much is it going to cost and how long it's going to take. I mean, you've got to have all that information going into this. And the only way to get that oftentimes is by hiring somebody that's done it hundreds, if not thousands of times. Right. Yeah, exactly. And here's a, an interesting uh, follow-up to um, a point you made earlier, and this is also, also from Rahendra on LinkedIn. And uh, Rahendra says, Marcus, URLs and contract that you mentioned is interesting. Could the customer not insist that documents in URLs need to be printed and signed as, as part of the contract? Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's really kind of the, the way to get through it, right, is to say, look, you can't, you can't give me a moving target of a contract. And, and I need to have you know, some, some guarantee that you can't unilaterally change the, what I think are agreed upon terms. And so let's attach all these URLs to the agreement as exhibits. That's certainly the way to do it. The, the challenge that you're gonna run into is this whole flexibility argument. And they're gonna say, well, you know, that's all well and good and we're willing to do that. But you have to understand that as the product set changes or we improve and provide additional functionality, the requirements or the descriptions or, you know, the, the specifications are going to change and those documents that that are in URLs necessarily will need to change as well. And so you, you've got to account for that, which in some ways is a reasonable uh, issue that they have. But, you know, you've got to make sure that they don't take unfairly advantage of it or unfair advantage of it. Excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a question from from Kyler on LinkedIn, a really good question that's very pertinent in today's day and age. What when moving to a cloud solution from an on-prem solution, legacy <laughs> system, what are some of the key nuances you should look for in the contract, such as total cost of ownership? Well, you know, it's, it's a good it's a good question and it's nuanced. I think there's a lot of ways to go with that, but certainly from a legal perspective, you know, you you want to make sure that you're getting some sort of a discounted rate. Okay, the rate or the discount is going to be proportional, I think, to the length of the term. Um, and having said that, you know, you're, there's going to be a resistance on the part of the vendor to give you the ability to easily get out of that contract without having to pay. So if you've negotiated a really good deal and you've got a five-year term, they're not going to want to get let you get out of the contract for convenience after year two without having to pay the remainder of the term. So the total cost of ownership in that in that context is going to be much higher than an on-prem model, arguably. Um, and there's a lot of nuance and gray area to what I just said, and we can get into that. But but you know the 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 reality of this total cost of ownership is that the cloud model is not necessarily cheaper, and in fact I would assert that it's probably more expensive. And one of the reasons that drives the push to the cloud and the transition from everybody you know going from on-prem to cloud. Is it's a it's a revenue grab in some in some respects, and you've got to be careful with that. Yeah, yeah. I was I was actually talking to a vendor, uh, one of the bigger software vendors in the space last week, and they they were the first vendor I've ever heard admit that the cloud is better for them than it is for their customers. <laughs> and it's not anything I think they'd say on record. They they would never say that on this live stream or in this format. But they were saying. I mean, I, I wasn't even baiting them into saying that. I wasn't because yeah. usually I would. That's something I would say. Or you would say, but um, they they kind of came out and said, yeah, the, the cloud thing is it's great for us, but we don't necessarily know that it's best for all of our customers. Yeah, I mean, I you know, there's a lot of disadvantages to it. I think cost is only one. I mean, the, the flexibility and the ability to customize the software certainly isn't as robust as it would be in an on-prem solution. So, you know, yeah. and that's what I said earlier is 
you know, the, the push and the drive to the cloud, you got to be careful with that. I mean, sometimes it doesn't it doesn't make sense for you. And just because everybody else is doing it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you should do it, too. Yeah, absolutely. We're here with Marcus Harris talking about some legal considerations as it relates to digital transformations and ERP implementations. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. When fans are big, that should be small. Who can tell what magic spells we'll be doing? Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, streaming to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen or watch to podcasts. Uh, we are here with Marcus Harris from TAF Law talking about some of the legal considerations to keep in mind during your digital transformation and ERP implementation. Let's jump back into the conversation. Now here's, this is great because uh, I love all these audience questions because it's taking pressure off me to ask you questions. It's uh, the bad news is it's just putting pressure on you, Marcus, to answer more questions, but it's taking it off me because I don't have to come up with questions. But, <laughs> but uh, this is from Ryan on LinkedIn. He says, have you started to see any issues arise from companies leveraging artificial intelligence or machine learning in their implementations? And what do those issues look like? So I feel like this is a not a can of worms, but a Pandora's box that we could spend the entire hour talking about if we wanted to. But what are some of the, the big the big things you've noticed here. Yeah, and this is a huge issue. And I'll try to I'll try to kind of hit on some of the highlights. I mean, you know, look, AI is certainly the wave of the future. And I think there's a lot of implications for ERP. And I think some of them are certainly amazing. Um, and it runs the gamut from, you know, AI generated code and the development process. So, you know, you're using, you've got, you've got a vendor that's using artificial intelligence to streamline the development um of the code and the implementation so that you're paying less money overall you've got you know robust artificial intelligence tools built into your erp system that you know are going to be more efficient or allow you to be more efficient uh you know predict uh things use your data in ways that you can only imagine on all of this is 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 amazing stuff but from a risk perspective i mean you, you you've really got to be open and aware of you know, a variety of issues. I mean, from an intellectual property standpoint, really, there's a, there's a ton of issues here where, you know, what, and it, and it comes down to the, the, the corpus of data that, that AI is trained on, okay? So what, what AI tool is being used either to develop the, the software during the implementation process or to integrate it, or what, what AI tools have been integrated into the ERP system that you're going to use on a going forward basis? Now, You've got to know that because you have to understand how that artificial intelligence system or platform was trained, what data or corpus of data is what we call it, was it trained on, 
you know, what, what you don't want is, you know, to be utilizing a system that has just gone out on the internet and collected all sorts of data and is now incorporating your data into that corpus. And that data set is also available to all of your competitors because you're on the cloud and you're sharing an AI platform. You know, Samsung, uh, not that long ago, had a, had a huge issue from a trade secret perspective where their internal employees were putting in, you know, secret information into an AI platform that was publicly available um, to, to do something with, you know, getting more efficient in their work stream, I suppose. Um, and, you know, no one knows exactly what happened to that trade secret information. Now it's been incorporated into that AI data set. And now other companies are training on that or other companies are using data that's been trained on that data. So, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a variety of issues here. Um, and I think, you know, the, the bright line rule is make sure that you really need to use AI. Okay. Um, and, and if, if your vendors are using it to develop deliverables, code, integrate your software, know what tools they're using, know what the terms and conditions associated with it are. Okay. Um, and then you also need to have an understanding of, you know, what AI tools are being incorporated into your, your, your ERP software that you're going to be using on a going forward basis. And the reason for that is you want to understand what happens to your data once you put it in the AI system. Um, you want to have an understanding of what you can do with the data that comes out of that AI system. You know, if, if it's 10% your info and 90% your competitor's info and they still have an ownership interest in it and now you incorporate it with your you know, deliverables or your products and then you go commercialize it, you know, what are the issues associated with infringement? So you know, there's just a ton of kind of mind-blowing issues that you really have to consider. But I do think it all comes back to having an understanding of the tool sets and the, the terms and conditions that are governing those and doing a, le a level of due diligence to understand what the risk is. Right, right. Now, you were on our podcast a couple months ago, and we talked specifically in that episode about um, artificial intelligence, open AI in particular, ChatGPT right. and open AI. And uh, I guess just to ask you a question or a topic we touched on in that, I think it's it's worth bringing up again here today. But if I'm using ChatGPT and let's just say I'm on a digital transformation project team, or let's just say I'm not even on a project team, I'm just part of an organization and I'm using ChatGPT to create some graphs or do some analysis for me using my my company data, um, what what happens to that information? Who owns it? Do I have protection? Is it out? Is it out in the public now? Like, what do I what do I need to be aware of either as part of a transformation or an organization in general if I'm using ChatGPT or OpenAI tools like that that are so common right. now? Well, if, if you are incorporating data from your company, okay, in, well, you're, you're putting it into open, open AI or chat GPT, you want to have an understanding of what happens to that data once it's put into that platform. And, you know, there, there's, there's some platforms where you, you give up ownership interests in it and, or, or, or you give a, a perpetual license to the platform so that it incorp can incorporate that information into the data set, train on the data set, and then spit out, you know, additional information for other users that is, and that information is based on or somehow reliant upon the information that you put in previously. Okay. So, you know, there's a, there's a variety of litigation right now. One of them deals with Getty Images where, um, you know, the AI system was trained on publicly available information. Okay. And some of those are just Getty images that are out on the internet. And you ask, 
you know, a, a, a open AI platform to, you know, generate pictures of cats or something, right? And all of a sudden, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a conglomeration of different Getty images and, you know, the, the, the Getty image watermark is on there. That is problematic, especially if you're going to go use that and, or, or worse, commercially exploit that and do something with it. You know, Getty Images is going to come after you and say, hey, you know, that's my information. You've built derivative works based on that information, and now you're commercially exploiting it. You owe me a lot of money. So that's, you know, that's the scenario that you have to be aware of and worried about. You know, you're, you're, you're putting your company information into the, the OpenAI platform to generate graphs. Now, what are you going to do with those graphs? Do you have the right to utilize them? And if you give them to your client, or your customer, and they go do things with them, what's the risk to them? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it, all, none of this is really settled. You've got to look at the terms and conditions to, uh, of, of use of that that, Jeep, that that OpenAI platform to make an understand, have an understanding of what the risk is. So if I go out to ChatGPT right now, let's just say hypothetically, I were to say, um, I asked ChatGPT to, um, and, I, and I've, yeah, I'll give you an example. We use HubSpot for our CRM system. Right. And HubSpot has like this integration now to ChatGPT and OpenAI where you could enter, I could type something into HubSpot, which is where we track all of our um, client information as well as our prospective client information, all the leads that come in on our website, everything goes through HubSpot. If I were to go to, to ChatGPT using that integration with HubSpot and I say, um, run a report of the last, uh, or tell me who the last 100 leads were that came in to, to the, through our website, um, and it spits out a report for me or it gives me some sort of consolidation or summary. Is that information now sort of public domain? Like, in other words, do I lose the sensitivity or the confidentiality of that information that I've had housed internally? Now I've used OpenAI to do some sort of analysis or do something with that data. What what happens to that information? Well, there's a, a huge risk. So if, if you were going to then argue that that information is a trade secret, okay, and you had put that into ChatGPT or HubSpot or, or whatever it is, and there's an express license from you to that platform allowing them to utilize that information, create derivative works, and provide it to other people. The the argument that you that you are going to make that that's a trade secret is is out the window basically because now you you negated any trade secret protection that you might have otherwise had for that that particular information. So if you have anything that's secret, confidential, or sensitive, it should not be put into an open AI platform. It just shouldn't. Right. There, there's a tremendous amount of risk. Now, the, the way to get around this, and you know, a lot of the vendors are, are developing their own systems, is you you want to you want to have a, a an open AI platform that is, you know, closed. I would say, um, and it's being trained on your own data. And so, you know, what's coming out of that system is something that's been vetted by your own company and utilized, you know, with can be utilized with some assurance that you're not giving up secrets and you're not infringing. So, you know, for for example, one of the practical um, impacts for a law firm would be, you know, we've negotiated thousands of, of enterprise software contracts. OK, and we've got an employee, a first or second year attorney that is tasked with coming up with a contractual framework for a brand new ERP vendor or startup, and he doesn't know where to start. He goes into our version of ChatGPT um, or whatever, you know, OpenAI platform that we've developed, but the data set, the corpus of data is, is documents 
that attorneys at this law firm have developed in the past, they've all been reviewed, they're reviewed on a consistent basis, and they're all good, solid documents to use. And now he can be confident that, you know, the, the documents that he's generating based on those aren't going to be infringing. They're not going to include any client secret of information, secret information, and he's not giving up any kind of intellectual property that he shouldn't be. That's where you want to get at some point. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a whole continuum between, you know, 100% safe utilization of open AI versus, you know, a, a totally risky one. And you kind of want to be somewhere in the middle. Right. Yeah. That makes, makes total sense. Here's a, here's a follow-up on LinkedIn that I think is super interesting. Be curious to get your reaction. Um, lots of companies are coming up with open AI-based products in manufacturing lines, smart cities, et cetera, you name it. How can we use it to our own advantage without much risk to client data? So in other words, how can we leverage AI in these open models, but also not run into the problems that you're, you're talking about? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can to be quite honest with you. I mean, I think it's an inherently risky thing to do and you have to understand the risk. And, you know, I sound like a broken record to some extent because I keep saying, go back to the terms and conditions. But if you're utilizing a particular AI platform, you have to read what they can do with your data and what they can't do with your data. You know, it's, it's a pretty simple exercise. Print out the terms of service or the terms of use, which is a binding contractual agreement and understand what guarantees are they making to you and what are you giving them? Oftentimes you're giving them an irrevocable perpetual license to utilize the data that you put in there in any way, shape or form that they want and they use it to train their AI system and it's available then to other, other customers that are using the AI platform as well. And you know, that, so the, the way to mitigate it is either don't use it, which isn't a good, a good solution because everybody's going to use it, develop your own system or license it on a on a exclusive or semi-exclusive basis where you've got terms that are more favorable to you than to the general public you know there's tiers right you go to you go to chat gpt you get a you get, you've got a free service you've got one that you can pay for you know the, that's once you start paying for things then you can customize the, the level of risk and what you want to agree to and not agree to you might customize some of the benefits and the functionality as well though we're here with Marcus Harris talking about some legal considerations as it relates to digital transformations and ERP implementations. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, streaming to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen or watch to podcasts. 
Uh, we are here with Marcus Harris from Taft Law talking about some of the legal considerations to keep in mind during your digital transformation and ERP implementation. Let's jump back into the conversation. As we were talking about this and as that question came out, I never thought of this before until just now. And, and this is a stick with me for a moment. I'm going to go a conspiracy theory for a second. But uh, the Great Reset, you know, the the line of thought that, you know, there's a movement to sort of equalizing countries and people within countries and sort of knocking down barriers and competitive advantages and things like that. I'm oversimplifying what the Great Reset yeah. conspiracy theory is, but it makes me wonder now if OpenAI is part of that Great Reset uh, conspiracy. <laughs> you know, that could be a whole, whole nother topic. You, you never know. I mean, you remember, you know, uh, Snowden, Snowden, I guess is how you say it, when he yeah. disclosed all the, the you know, national secret information and there were the, you know, the USB thumb drives that actually, you know, were distributed to all these adversarial countries that, you know, infected their computers and was a, a tool for spying. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, it, it, it very well could be something like that. You, you got to yeah. be careful. Well, and, and even if that's not the intent, there's not some, you know, conspiracy behind the scenes happening. I mean, you do have to be aware that, from, from what you're saying, it sounds like you could lose a lot of competitive advantage by giving up some of this confidential information and advantages that you have as an organization. And so um, just being aware of it, I think, is is step number one. And then you also mentioned in that that episode you were on last, I think you were talking about getting policies in place. You talked a bit about, you know, what you can do to mitigate and to sort of, especially now that ChatGPT, I keep talking about ChatGPT, even though that's only one part of OpenAI yeah. or one example, but it, that seems to be the consumer facing one that a lot of people know of and they can use it at home and in their personal lives or at work. But you get a lot of people that start using ChatGPT or OpenAI in the, in the workplace. You sort of have to put some parameters in place of what can or can't you use, you know, in terms of confidential information within yeah, that. Open source I, model. I think it's critical. I mean, if you're a company of any size um, doing a re any kind of reasonable amount of business, um, and you're trying to use these tools, you've got to put some sort of policy in place. You've got to put guardrails for your employees to have an understanding of when they can and when they can't utilize it. Because if there is an incident, you want to you want to insulate yourself as much as possible from liability. If you have no policy and it's the Wild West, you've got to help you, right? I mean, I think you're, you're really setting yourself up for, for some potential liability there. But I think if you have a well-thought-out internal policy as to when people can use it, what they can use it for, and what they can't put in there, um, then I think I think you're doing about everything you can do to, to, to really mitigate the risk to your company and the liability that would follow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, great, great points there. Um, what other, are there any other sorts of uh, intellectual property types of risk. And that's essentially what we're talking about here is confidential data and, and intellectual property and how do you protect it? And we've been talking about it a lot in the context of open AI, but what about custom software? You know, if you do customization to software, um, I'll give you an example. We have a client right now who's doing a, an SAP implementation and they are, um, they're sort of co-innovating with SAP for a certain industry that they're in to create a product that fits their industry, which is highly risky, by the way, but that's a whole nother conversation, highly risky to code develop this stuff and then introduce it to your organization when it's never been used by anyone else. That's a whole nother story for another time. Yeah, but, yeah. but what do you, how, do, what about intellectual property in that case, when you customize software, like who owns that in that case, if you're, if your software vendor is creating customization for you, but you're paying for it and you're using yeah. it for your organization? Well, you know, most customers think that because they're paying for it, they own it. And that's not the way the law works, unfortunately. So the way the law works is the ownership defaults to 
the author and, and software code is authored in this context. So in, in the context that, that you just laid out, SAP would be the absolute owner of it. And now that becomes problematic for a variety of reasons. And, and one is, you know, if you're developing that something or paying SAP to develop something for you that is strategic and gives you a strategic advantage, you're going to want to have some exclusivity associated with that competitive advantage. And you're not going to want SAP to have an ownership interest in it. And so that needs to be detailed in the contract. I think, you know, one, one of the ways in, in SAP does this in particular to deal with this situation is to clarify, hey, look, you know, everything that we SAP bring to the table, our pre-existing intellectual property will remain ours, okay? Everything that that is your pre-existing intellectual property is going to remain yours. And then anything that we do on the project specifically for you, that's where the gray area is. SAP's default position is we own it and it's ours, okay? Mm-hmm. And you know, their rationale for that is, well, we're a software development company, so to speak, and we need to take this that piece of deliverable technology, whatever it is, code that we're developing for your particular implementation, and then be able to utilize it across our customer base so that we can gain efficiencies for that. And that's that's our business model. That's what we do. Your argument and counter to that is, well, I'm paying you specifically to do something that I've come up with that is innovative, and I need to own it. And so those are the two you know loggerheads that you're going to run into. And, you know, you, you've got to put contractual language in the agreement. Uh, it's called work for hire language specifically that, that would vest ownership in anything that's custom created in, 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 in your company. Um, and, you know, whether they're likely to do that or not depends on a variety of factors, including how much money you're spending. But, you know, one of the interesting questions is, is you know, what if SAP is developing something for you um, they're going to own that because it's based on their code, but it incorporates a piece of, you know, technology or information or confidential information, whatever it is, and that's embedded in it. Um, who owns that embedded piece of, of technology or information? You know, that's something that you've got to carve out contractually and make sure everybody understands. Yeah. Well, and of course, there's the whole, you've addressed the legal side of it, and then there's the ethical side of, you know, should a software vendor be charging a customer to develop software that they don't have that, you know, so in other words, you're, you're hiring an ERP vendor or a commercial off the shelf software vendor to provide capabilities out of the box that, you know, that's, that's the whole point of it. Otherwise you, you could go create your own custom software, you know, and, and maintain that competitive advantage, right. but there's the ethics of software vendor charges for it develops it for you, but they take that and then that becomes sort of the industry standard that they provide to other customers, their own customers that are presumably competitors of yours, by the way, if you're one co-innovating with them, right. there's nothing stopping that vendor from now offering that same capability to other other vendors. And, and they will do it, right? If, they, if they've got the ability to do it, they're going to do it. Um, and they're going to be laughing all the way to the bank. You know, their position would be, well, look, everybody thinks that they've got something innovative and, and amazing and really all this stuff is the same from customer to customer. No one's really doing anything that much differently um, anyway. And so there's no ethical issue here. It's an issue of practicality. And, and, you know, if you were to have an ownership interest in this as a customer, then if we were to ever provide something that's substantively similar, 
to other customers, you're going to be able to sue not only us, but those customers. And that creates an untenable situation for us. So, I mean, this is this is one of the, the most negotiated uh, difficult issues in these kinds of agreement, agreements. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, it's not only a, a, an ethical issue, but it's also a practical one, too. Why are you hiring SAP to custom develop software for you for something that should be off the shelf? You've already got a problem, in my view. Yeah. And you're you're headed down a road that's that's ripe with difficulty, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, spending way too much money going over budget, having issues with support and maintenance for customized software that nobody else has. You know, I mean, there's a lot of issues there. Yeah. Well, and just as a footnote or kind of a uh, what happened next to that client example I gave you. And since I didn't mention the client, I can say this. And by the way, it's not the only client we have that this has happened to, but they canceled their S4HANA implementation. Oh, um, wow. And, they're trying to do this co-innovation thing. And when you hear the word co-innovation, um, this is not a legal, this is not legal advice. This is just more uh, third-party consulting advice. But when you hear the word co-innovation, that's usually code for we don't have the functionality you need, so pay us to develop it for you. And you, you have to really, uh, that's that's highly risky. I mean, you're, you might as well at that point go create your own custom software because that is that is what you're doing. I'm, you know, I, it's actually in some ways even worse because you're taking a, off the shelf system and you're trying to change it to do something it was, wasn't designed to do, but you're changing it for your business. And uh, that's always risky to do. I, I think that's you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it is risky. Why would you do that? I mean, um, you're creating just a whole risk profile that subjects you to a lot of problems and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what are some of the ways, you know, if we sort of tie this all together, if, I'm on a project team and I'm about to go through a transformation. I'm about to go procure software. What are some of the best ways to mitigate risk during the procurement process? What are some of the, you know, some of the low hanging fruits that you would recommend? Yeah. And, and, and look, I mean, this is going to sound, you know, like a, a sponsored kind of statement or something, but to hire somebody like you, to, to be quite honest with you, you know, but, but what you want is, you know, consultants that, that, or have an understanding of the software evaluation and selection process. And I think if you're in that procurement space or phase, those are going to, those are the types of consultants that are going to provide the most value in, in selecting, you know, the right solution for you, vetting that out, you know, pitting vendors against each other. I mean, what you want are, you know, tight RFPs, tight RFIs that actually, you know, help you. You want to be able to, you know, select vendors based on objective criteria, which would be software demonstrations, testing, scripts, that kind of thing. Um, get an understanding of the, the total cost of ownership, the, the cost of the integration, the implementation, any customization that would be necessary. And then, you know, keep two or two to three vendors, you know, in that selection process while you go through that contract negotiation so that you can see what are you actually getting? Who's giving you a better deal? You know, let them know that they're competing against each other. Like the worst thing you can do is, you know, look at what your competitors are, or who who they're using, pick that that company, move forward with it, and just sign a contract as is with them. That that to me is a recipe for disaster in a very big way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yet a lot of companies do that. Exactly that. Yeah, and and you know those are the companies that you see fail, and you know they wonder you know, why they're in this situation where you know they're they're over budget. Um, milestones have been missed and they're not getting the functionality or the business benefits that they wanted to realize. 
and you know there's a reason for that you didn't you didn't do your homework on the front end and you're not going to get it on the back end right right yeah exactly now what about during implementation what what sort of uh what are some of the best ways to mitigate risk during the legal risk during the implementation process yeah in, in you know I, I you know I, I go back to these contractual tools right and um you know, there's an old joke if you, know, you hire a, a, a carpenter to do something you know he just wants to hit everything with a hammer right right and, and you know, that, that's kind of the lawyer's perspective as well but here i think it's really true i mean you have to negotiate solid implementation related contracts that serve as a tool to manage and govern your relationship with that vendor throughout the process okay you want to be able to pull out a statement of work and say this is when you were supposed to do this. You didn't do it. Here's what you have to do now. And here's the impact on the budget. That, that to me is tight governance of the project. And it has to be in the contracts because if it's not, you're relying on you know, them to develop a project plan. You're, you're relying on you know, regular meetings. You're re relying on project status updates that may not really provide you with any substantive information anyway. Um, those can be manipulated and, and the true health of the project can be hidden from you. I mean, you, you've got to put contracts with teeth in them you know, to manage the project. They're going to push back, of course, right? They're going to say, well, we've got this vague, vague implementation methodology um, and you just need to trust it and that this is how we do things. They won't provide you with any kind of you know, timelines or estimations or milestones or deliverable deadlines and just say, well, here's this you know, vague PowerPoint you know, presentation of how an implementation normally goes. Good luck. That's right. the opposite of what you want. But the reality is, I mean, today, you know, with this the push to the cloud, standardization among vendors, the argument that the, the contracts are all standard and, and the implementation should be standard too, you, you're going to run into a lot of pushback on this, you know, and, you know, agile software development is a problem as well, where you know, they're going to say, well, we can't, we can't do it that way because, you know, we just got to iterate and, and that's the value of our system. And it, mm -hmm. it's a lot more, you know, beneficial to you in the long run. Well, that's not really true in my view. And I think, you know, they're, they're getting, they're, they're telling you a load of a BS in order to get you to, to sign on the dotted line. And then they're going to do what they want and, right. and they're going to charge you for the, for the benefit of them doing what they want. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The agile conversation is a whole nother Pandora's box. We could spend an hour on that for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the bane of, of a software attorney's existence is, you know, you know, having an agile methodology and then they come back and say, well, we can't even have SOWs because, you know, it's just gonna, you just gotta iterate the whole time. And that, that, you know, that that's just a horrible, horrible strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, you hate to say it, but you look at what are the ways that software vendors and implementers protect themselves. And you, you talked about the contractual protection, the one-sided contractual protection, they, um, they put in these one size fits all contracts that are meant to service, serve their self-interest, but then agile too, you know, that's another thing that regardless of whether or not it's the right answer for a client, it is a good way to protect yourself if you're an implementer, because you're just adapting, you're reacting, you're, you know, it, it takes away the need or it takes the pressure off you defining requirements up front and having a clear strategy and blueprint for how you're going to deploy technology. It takes a lot of that pressure off you because you're, you're doing it in the name of agile. Right. And you're doing it on an hourly basis. And, you know, you, you can, you know, just you're, 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 you're getting, getting drunk off hourly hours, uh, hourly charges or hourly fees, you know, like a pirate on the dock 
you know, swigging rum and you're just having a good old time. And it's a great analogy. All all the agile and, you know, you're making a ton of money and it's not going anywhere. There's no, there's no checks and balances on your performance. Um, And, you know, all that's obviously risky. Now, anytime I see a technical consultant, I'm going to think of he or she is a pirate on a ship just drinking rum so, <laughs> or to the Caribbean or whatever. That's right. Um, that's right. Well, good. Well, I, I really appreciate your time here today, Marcus. This is a great, great overview. And uh, as always, a good conversation and time flies when uh, we're diving into this stuff. So really appreciate you, you being here today. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I just looked at the clock and didn't realize that our time was up. I apologize for having technical difficulties earlier. I'm not sure what happened, but you were able to get back back into it pretty quickly. So. Hey, it worked out all right, and you forced me to you forced me to tap dance a little bit and stall, which is always a good way to get. I'm not a morning person, so it's a good way to wake me up, you know, just to keep me on my game here. Um, well, I see I see you drinking those monsters in the morning, so hopefully that's giving you a lot of energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, sh- I should uh, try and get them as a sponsor of this podcast because I'm, I'm usually am drinking a monster uh, on camera here. Um, <laughs> But I also want to leave the audience with this. Uh, if you'd like to meet Marcus and I in person, along with about a dozen other thought leaders in the industry, technology agnostic people that can uh, provide some good guidance and, and lessons from digital transformations, uh, be sure to attend and join us. Attend the conference and join us in Denver, October 4th through the 6th. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a technology agnostic conference we host. Uh, used to be every year in person until COVID happened. And now this is our first time back in person. You can register, you can look at the agenda, which is, continues to change and evolve because we're continuing to add to it. We're taking an agile approach to our uh, agenda development for, <laughs> for, the, uh, for the event, but partly because we are, we continue to add new speakers and new sessions, but uh, join us. You can learn from people like us, just as importantly, the peer networking is, is a really powerful component of this event too. So you can go to stratosphere2023.com um, I'll be doing a book signing there for my new book that just came out. Uh, Marcus will be there presenting as a keynote. Um, I'll be presenting as, as will others. We'll even have live entertainment. There'll be an 80s tribute or 80s cover band, which uh, is really good. They're an amazing band. I've seen several times. Uh, it's actually my favorite uh, 80s cover band. So you can, uh, you'll, you'll get to enjoy that as well if you join us. So we'd love to meet you in person so you can learn more. You can register. You can see the agenda at stratosphere2023.com. And, uh, yeah, Marcus, thank you for co-sponsoring that with us. It's co-sponsored by Taft, by us, as well as uh, technology evaluation centers and a, a company called called Avero Advisors. The four of us, the four companies are co-sponsoring that event. So thank you for being part of that, Marcus. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great event. I am looking forward to it. I invite all of you people to come. Um, you know, it, it's really a, a pretty valuable event and, and a unique event like none of the other events that, that I attend. Um, or, or speak at, and you know, there's a lot of, of interaction between um, the attendees and the speakers and the sponsors, and so I think you get a lot of value add out of this one. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, uh, you've been there a few times, so uh, you 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 can speak from experience of what, what a great event is it is, and you've been a part of it. If you every time we've done it, in fact, Taft has, has co-sponsored it, so we appreciate your your partnership there, and look Absolutely. forward to doing it again with you, and uh, look forward to seeing all of you there, all of you listening here today. So. All right. Thank you, Marcus. Great conversation. As always, I learn something new every time you're on. So thank you for that. And also, uh, again, as a reminder, stratosphere2023.com is where you can go to learn more about the event that uh, both uh, his company and our company, Third Stage, will be hosting October 4th through the 6th in Denver, Colorado. We'd love to meet you there. So go to stratosphere2023.com to see the agenda, the speaker lineup, uh, registration info, all that good stuff. Be sure to check that out. We'd love to see you there in Denver. 
Um, so when we come back from a break, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the conversation we just had with Marcus and debrief on some of the nuggets of information we pulled from that conversation. And then we're also going to get into the top 10 list of our top 10 ERP systems for 2024. We'll do that after, uh, after that. So be sure to stick around. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham. And we just had uh, Marcus Harris on the show, Kyler, talking about legal considerations for digital transformations. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways from our conversation with Marcus? Well, Marcus has just such an amazing perspective in the fact that he actually has direct experience with what can happen when contracting fails or you don't consider specific things within your SOW, especially if you're moving into a new kind of emerging technology, whether it is a SaaS that's been around for a long time or anything like that. But I was thinking the whole time and kind of giggling to myself, if I were going to Stratosphere as just an attendee, he would probably be the one person I would like stalk the whole time to make sure that, you know, I had all of the the language. Not that you're not worth stalking, Eric, and I would want you to sign my book, which I still want you to sign my book, even though I, I you know, I work for you. Uh, but also he just has so much specific knowledge about what can happen if you don't have um, an SOW or a, any sort of contracting um, asset that's not fully baked or reviewed by a specialist. And I think he said it perfectly when he said um, early legal advice is is less expensive. And what I wanted to kind of turn around and ask you about, because I know you have a unique perspective as an expert witness as well. So you kind of have that front row seat, just like him, to the perspective of what can actually happen from a cost perspective if you don't take these into consideration in your phase zero planning. So I thought I'd kind of turn that question on to you. Is seeking overall con considerations or support on your digital transformation, is that less expensive if you do it early, just like the legal advice that um, Marcus said? Or can you give us our, your perspective in that in that standpoint? Yeah, it's exponentially less expensive to get that legal advice up front. And, it, and it's a lot like, you know, think about an implementation. It's a lot cheaper just to do it right than to have to do it two or three times or to, you know, have to pause and reset and start over or whatever, which is what unfortunately happens with a lot of these projects. Same is true with legal advice. If you spend a little bit of money up front, you may not want to. You may not want to spend that time and money or the software vendor or system integrator may convince you you don't need the legal review. This is all, you know, perfectly balanced contract or whatever. Um, you should have someone with experience that can find some of these nuances that he he talked about in the conversation. Um, but you think about the consequences of 
not doing that and where you could end up. I mean, you, there's, he, he mentioned or alluded to things like, um, you know, lost confidential data and things like that. That's, that's kind of hard to quantify, but what is, is a little bit easier to understand or get your arms around is what happens in a project. You know, if a, if a project fails because you don't have the right guardrails in place or you didn't get, have a good contract in place and what happens if that spending gets out of control or the project goes off track and you end up having to cancel the project or whatever, those, those things happen. And, I, and that's what you have to look at is what is the risk and the cost associated with that? So it's absolutely a lot less expensive and, and it's sort of like an insurance policy. You know, you may, you ultimately you'll spend that money and you'll feel like it was probably money well spent, but you won't fully understand what you just saved yourself from, you know, because there's nothing there. You don't have as much to worry about, at least from a legal perspective. So, um, you know, I've seen enough of those expert witness failures to know that the, the downside risk can be pretty, pretty significant. And letting the audience in on, on kind of something we did internally, you actually brought in a client to one of our leadership meetings at Third Stage to talk through what happens when you don't go through the due diligence within not only the contracting phase, but the planning phase, because this client actually came to us after the fact for some remediation services because they figured out that actually their system integrator owned their custom integrations. They didn't actually own that. So they were in a situation yeah. where they legitimately could not fire or move away from their system integrator because they owned that intellectual property. And this client, very savvy, very smart executive team, had no idea that that was even a consideration. And honestly, neither did I. So I think mm -hmm. in those situations, like understanding that is going to be key to not only being able to be successful, but then like you talked about earlier in the episode, kind of go out and spread your wings and fly as an internal organization. So it always kind of takes me back to those things that you don't know that can become a significant pain point and expensive pain point within your transformation that can ultimately lead it to fail even after go live. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I can't help but think, you know, the the gamesmanship that you just described, which is essentially what it is. It's, it's sort of like it's gamesmanship and it's it's preserving self-interest and it's capitalizing on a lack of understanding or lack of knowledge from your customer base if you're a software vendor. That's what a lot of these software vendors are doing. And I think it's just a matter of time before uh, a, a government entity somewhere steps in and says, you know what, this is bad and we need to regulate it. And I think that's what if, if you ask me, I think that's where this industry is headed eventually, just based on the unethical behavior and the sketchy stuff that happens. I think eventually it's just a matter of time before some government somewhere decides that they're going to regulate. And if I had to predict, I'd say it's probably the EU because the EU seems to be ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff. And they seem to be the first to pounce into action when there is something that needs, needs to be addressed. And once the EU does it, you know, you can ex expect the rest of the world to sort of fall into place. So I think the more stuff like this, the more gamesmanship that the software vendors and tech integrators continue to do, the more they're just setting themselves up for to regulation by the government, which in my opinion is probably worse than if they just would, if I'm a software vendor, I'd rather just act in a normal way and, and not have to deal with the government. Yeah. To do it ethically. To, and then you won't have to worry about the government uh, inter intervening in it, but that's pure speculation on my part. But um, I don't know. What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Um, acting with integrity. And I think it's so important to kind of piece that out from a strategic standpoint, because you asked, um, Mark, is a great question about the considerations of things like generative AI, which we talked about, the security risks around that. We, we've talked about kind of the Samsung example where an employee with the best intention was trying to fix a problem using generative AI, but that open platform opened that up to an intellectual property debate. But we don't often realize that the ethics of the the vendor partners can be a risk as well. And that's why it's so important to have someone like um, like you or Marcus to kind of work together because we do a lot of joint um, engagements with Marcus to make sure that if we see a client that's in kind of a complex situation that needs a review, that we need to make sure that they own their intellectual property, that they have those quality assurance, those guardrails in place to ensure that they're going to be successful. So there's so many components that go into that. That's why it's critical to get that contracting or that phase zero planning correct in order to not have to spend a bunch of time, resources, and just pain in general. Um, because it's, you know, it's honestly sad. And I know I'm always a, a bleeding heart of everyone should do the right thing. But it is sad when you go into and you spend as much time as you do as a business on that growth mentality and mindset to interact with a partner that might not have the best of intentions. Um, so that, you know, that's a big kind of team up that Eric and Marcus and the rest of third stage team does is to ensure that you are set up for success as a business, not as someone that will be paying your partners for the rest of your life. So I totally agree. Yeah. So there's some stuff that's definitely, definitely worth noting. And, uh, you know, I think uh, back to your original question or point, you know, you can, we can avoid all this headache by, by having that legal review up front. We're not going to change the industry overnight. That's the bad news, but the good news is you can, do things to protect yourself and, and to build that uh, self-sufficiency uh, along the way. Absolutely. And if and I can't recommend enough, um, Marcus is actually bringing a team with him from Taft, um, as Taft is a sponsor um, for Stratosphere that is here in Denver on the 4th through the 6th um, as well. So being able to see him there and ask questions to his team is really invaluable. Um, so highly recommend following up with that. And we, of course, just love to see you and have fun at the event. Yeah, absolutely. And he's a, he's a great guy. He's, he's someone that if you met him, at least for me, I, I would never guess he's an attorney. He doesn't, he doesn't strike me as my stereotypical view of what an attorney should be. And I mean that in a good way. I mean, as a compliment, I mean, obviously he knows his stuff and he's very good at what he does, but his personality isn't uh, your typical attorney personality. So he's a, he's a lot of fun to learn from and, and to hang out with. So uh, stratosphere2023.com, if you want in that, that's, that's your, that's your ticket right there is to go to stratosphere2023.com. And you can hang out with Marcus, myself, Kyler, and about a dozen other speakers as well. So be sure to join us there. Well, good. Well, we're going to um, jump into an exciting piece of content that we produce uh, every year, which is our top 10 ranking of ERP systems. And this is our 2024 ranking that was just released days ago. And uh, we're going to dive into that. We're going to play you the top 10 list uh, from my YouTube channel. And then we're going to unpack it a bit afterwards. So you'll want to stick around for that as well. So we'll get to the top 10 ERP systems here in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be. I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide 
that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode. You can find a link to uh, take you to the page that will allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the Guide to Organizational Change Management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Um, excited for this uh, next piece of content we're going to play for you. It's our top 10 ranking of the top 10 ERP systems for 2024. Who's going to be number one? Is there a new number one? Who's going to be in the top 10? Who's not? Who fell in the list? Who went up in the list? All that stuff. We're going to answer all those questions for you right now. We're going to play you that top 10 list, which was just released on my YouTube channel not too long ago. Um, so let's just jump right into it. Here's the uh, top 10 ERP systems for 2024. When choosing the best ERP software for your organization, it helps to look at what are the top 10 systems out there in the marketplace. So what are the top 10 systems for 2024 and beyond? That's what I want to talk about here today. And when we're helping clients through digital transformations, we look at a lot of different things. We help them evaluate features and functionality, implementation, cost, and risk, and overall fit of ERP technologies with their digital transformation goals and objectives. But oftentimes organizations get overwhelmed with all the different options out there and understanding what the best fit is for their organization. So what I want to do today is talk about from an agnostic perspective, what are the top 10 systems that you should be considering for 2024 and beyond and just as a quick caveat and note, third stage consulting is not affiliated with any of these software vendors or any other system in the marketplace. This top 10 list is simply based on our experience helping clients select and implement all different types of solutions in the marketplace. Now, if you're looking for more information about these software technologies we're gonna talk about here today, or if you're looking for best practices to help make your digital transformation more successful, I encourage you to read our annual digital transformation report. It's a report we publish each year that covers a number of independent reviews and rankings and best practices for digital transformation to help your project be more successful. You can read that by scanning the QR code here in front of you, or you can go to the description field below for links to that report, as well as other resources that will help you through your digital transformation journey. Before we jump into the top 10 list for this year, it helps to talk about the methodology we use this year compared to past years as well as what changes happened at a high level to the top 10 list. First of all, we'll talk about the changes. So in other words, what systems are no longer in the top 10 that were in the top 10 last time we did this ranking? Well, there's two vendors in particular that fell out of the top 10 that were in the top 10 in the past. One is Sage X3 and the other is Acumatica. Not that there's anything wrong with these products, but the ERP software field is becoming very crowded and there's a lot of movement and advances in the industry. And there were just simply other vendors that moved further into the top 10 and knocked those two out. So that's the first thing to note is these two vendors are no longer in our top 10. The other thing to note is our ranking methodology. How did we decide who is or isn't in the top 10 
and how do we decide how the top 10 compare to one another? Well, what we do is we look at overall functionality of the software, we look at the cost and risk of deploying technology, and we look at the results that our own clients get from having chosen and implementing these different technologies. And the beauty of being completely technology agnostic and 100% unaffiliated with all of these software vendors is that we get a broad view of the marketplace and we understand the good, the bad, the ugly of all the different software vendors and the outcomes that we see with our clients. The one thing I'll say that is a bit different and has a heavier weighting this year than in years past is the failure rate of implementations. We looked very heavily this year at what is the failure rate of these different vendors and that worked against some vendors in this case. You'll see a couple of vendors that fell in the top 10 largely because of their implementation results, not so much because of their technology or the functions and capabilities. So that's a bit about the methodology. So let's jump into the top 10 list now. Coming in at number 10 is the Force platform. And the Force platform is actually owned by Salesforce and is created by Salesforce. And it's essentially a platform that allows Salesforce to be more than just a CRM solution, which is what it's known for. Force allows organizations and third-party developers to extend Salesforce's capabilities or change Salesforce's capabilities by creating third-party applications and adding additional layers of features and functionality for specific functions and or industries that allow organizations to have a semi-tailored solution that's a broad ERP type of solution. Last year, Force was number nine on our list. It dropped to number 10, but it's still a very strong solution and it's a good alternate for organizations that don't necessarily want a single application, but they want to deploy a platform that gives them a lot of flexibility to tie together different systems and potentially even create their own custom applications to tie together with that Force platform. Now, if you're looking for more information and a deeper dive into Salesforce and the Force platform, check out this video right here. It's a review that I did not too long ago of Salesforce, and this video will dive into the features and functionality of Salesforce in more detail. Coming in at number nine is Odoo. Odoo is an open source system that has gained a lot of traction and momentum in the marketplace. It was number eight on our list last year. It fell slightly, just a little bit to number nine, mainly because there were two new entrants that moved ahead of Odoo in the top 10, but still enough to keep it in the top 10. And the reason Odoo is in our top 10 is because it offers a good alternative to smaller and mid-sized organizations that are looking for a system that gives them flexibility and allows them simplicity in a sea of really complex ERP systems. Odoo is also very cost-effective, so a lot of smaller and mid-sized organizations that don't have big budgets are able to afford Odoo. But the downside risk of Odoo is that it may not be big enough or complex enough or robust enough for a larger organization. And another downside risk is that Odoo as an organization seems to be getting a little ahead of itself trying to go after larger organizations when their software isn't quite capable of some of the larger, more complex needs of organizations. But despite those negatives, there is enough strengths with Odoo to keep it in our top 10 at number nine on the list. And if you're looking for a deeper dive review of Odoo and understanding the pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses, check out this video right here. It's an independent review that I did of Odoo that talks about what some of those strengths and weaknesses are in a bit more detail. Coming in at number eight is Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite was number two last year and it dropped a few places to number eight, largely because of some of the implementation challenges that we've seen amongst their customer base. 
Now, let me start with the strengths, though, of what the strengths of the product are and why it's in our top 10 list. First of all, it's a pioneer in the software as a service or the cloud space. So they have a very mature product that's been around for a long time, unlike many legacy on-premise vendors that are just now making the migration to the cloud. The other strength of NetSuite is that it's designed largely for small and mid-sized companies. So if we were just to look at our smaller clients, NetSuite would actually be much higher on our list. In fact, it might be as high as number one on our list if we were to look at our client base right now, just among small clients. But because we're looking at companies of all sizes and industries, NetSuite doesn't quite have the capabilities to support larger and even mid-sized organizations. And perhaps the biggest thing holding back NetSuite in our top 10 list this year is the implementation results that we're seeing with some of our clients. Some of our clients have struggled with the relative lack of flexibility of the product combined with the complexity of the product as well. And this is largely because of the SaaS model. When you have a software as a service model that is essentially multi-tenant, that limits the flexibility of what you can do with it, unlike other cloud solutions. But all that being said, NetSuite is a very strong product. It's used by a lot of organizations. And if you're in the smaller mid-market, it might be especially appealing to you. Now, one other interesting data point as it relates to Oracle NetSuite is it is actually number two on our list of the most commonly selected systems by our client base. So that's something that's worth noting as well. Now, if you're looking for a deeper dive into the strengths and weaknesses and the pros and cons of Oracle NetSuite, check out this video right here, which is an independent review that I did recently of the pros and cons of the software. Coming in at number seven this year is IFS. And IFS is a unique solution that focuses heavily on construction and field services and some manufacturing and distribution. And they're a software vendor, unlike many others, that are not trying to be everything to everyone. They know what they're good at and they tend to stick to their knitting in that regard. Last year, IFS was number five on our list and they are the seventh most selected system amongst the third stage global client base, which is why it's here in our top 10 again this year. Some of the strengths of the product include the focus that I talked about and the fact that they're growing fairly aggressively throughout the world and they're really putting a lot of effort and time and resources into building out their ecosystem of partners that can sell and implement the solution. So those are some of the strengths. Some of the downside weaknesses are that because this is a general ranking of top 10 systems across all industries, IFS doesn't fit in all industries and that's okay, but it's something that does hold back IFS from being higher in our top 10 list. Having said that, because they do focus so much on certain industries, they tend to have somewhat of a higher implementation success rate as a result of that. Now, if you're looking for more information about the pros and cons of IFS in more detail, check out this video right here. It's an independent review that I did of IFS that talks about the strengths and weaknesses of the product in a lot more detail. Coming in at number six is SAP S4 HANA. And S4 HANA dropped from number four in last year's ranking down to number six. And it's also our number four most selected ERP system amongst our global client base. Now S4 HANA is a very robust product. It can do a lot of different things. It's designed and built for the Fortune 500 and the biggest organizations in the world. That's the good news. The bad news is that there are some material deficiencies in the product as they continue the transition from on-prem ECC and R3 types of solutions to their cloud S4 HANA solution. Another reason that S4 HANA has dropped in our top 10 ranking is because the implementation results have not been as strong as other software vendors. There have been a lot of SAP implementation failures in recent years. And in fact, even in our own client base, we've had a couple clients that have completely canceled their S4 HANA implementations because of material concerns with the product and with the implementation itself. So for those reasons, although the system is falling in our top 10 ranking, 
it's still a very strong and a very prevalent product in the marketplace, and that's why it's number six. For more information and details and understanding of the pros and cons of the system, you can also check out this video, which is an independent review of S4 HANA that I did not too long ago. We're here playing for you the top 10 ERP systems for 2024. We still got a lot more to get to, including who's number one, who's in the top three, how did the top three change from last year? We're gonna get into all of that after a quick break. We're, we'll take that quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're here playing for you the top 10 ERP systems for 2024. Let's jump back in and see who's at the top of the list. Coming in at number five is a new entrant into our top 10, and that is Epicor. And Epicor is a vendor that owns a number of different systems that I'm not going to go into in a lot of detail here, but they own Vantage and Profit21 and a few other different ERP systems that focus on different industries. Some of the industries that Epicor focuses on includes manufacturing, distribution, and retail. Those are three of the industries that we see the most commonly used. In fact, Epicor is the fifth most commonly selected ERP software across our client base, which is part of the reason why it's new to the top 10. Another reason why Epicor is new to the top 10 is because in years past, they actually struggled as an organization. They had a lot of troubled implementations. They had stripped back on their professional services group. They had really cut back on their ecosystem of implementation partners. But in more recent years, they've really put in place a new leadership team that looks very promising. And it's sort of an all-star group of executives that have been in the industry for a long time. And the vendor itself and the products themselves seem to be headed in the right direction. So for those reasons, combined with the results we're seeing with our client base, that's why Epicor is number five on our list. Now, if you want to learn more about the strengths and weaknesses of Epicor Vantage, which is their flagship product, you can watch my independent review of the software, which you can find right here on my YouTube channel. Coming in at number four is Workday. And Workday has been on our list in the past, but it wasn't in our top 10 list last year. The reason it wasn't in our top 10 list is because some of the missing capabilities in core ERP functionality. Workday has historically been known as more of a financials and HCM or an HR sort of technology. But in recent years, Workday has invested heavily in supply chain management and really expanding the ERP-esque capabilities of the product. The other reason why Workday is new to our top 10 list and made the top 10 this year at such a high level is because more and more organizations are choosing Workday. They're gaining a lot of traction in their sales cycle and in the marketplace. And their implementations do have troubles, just like any software vendor, but they seem to be building a positive track record of implementation success. So you may have 
thought of Workday as just an HR or just a financial type of system, but it's important to think of Workday as more of a complete ERP system. If you're looking for more information about the pros and cons of Workday in more detail, check out this video right here, which is an independent review of the pros and cons of the solution that I recently published on my YouTube channel. Coming in at number three is Infor Cloud Suite, which is up from number six last year. It's also the number three most selected system amongst third stage's client base. And the reason Infor Cloud Suite has moved up is largely because it's being selected at a higher pace amongst our client base, but also because Cloud Suite is starting to finally get some traction and some stability to the Cloud Suite solution. For a long time, Infor has really struggled with M3 and Sightline and some of the other legacy products and having a clear roadmap for Cloud Suite going forward and having a unified roadmap for Cloud Suite going forward. But now we're starting to see the fruits of the last few years of their investments in Cloud Suite in advancing the product as well. Having said that, there are still imperfections with the product. There's still some confusion and sort of a mix and match of different solutions that are required to satisfy many clients' needs, but they've come a long way and their product is a lot more complete than some of the other products in the marketplace. So for those reasons, Infor is number three on our list this year, and you can learn more about Infor Cloud Suite in more detail in terms of features and functionality and pros and cons by watching this video right here from my YouTube channel that dives into my independent review of Infor Cloud Suite. Coming in at number two is Oracle Fusion Cloud ERP, which is up from number three last year, so it moved up one in our ranking. And it's also the sixth most selected software among third stage's global client base. Now, the reason Oracle has moved up in the ranking and the reason it's so high in our ranking is because it provides a flexible option for large organizations. Oracle generally focuses on the big multinational organizations. It's a robust product. It can do a lot of different things. It has a lot of diversity in its functionality, but it's also flexible, more flexible than say an SAP S4 HANA, which is why it rates higher than SAP. Oracle also has less of a black eye when it comes to implementation results. Although there are plenty of implementation challenges and even some failures in the Oracle ecosystem, Oracle Fusion Cloud ERP has a lower failure rate than SAP in terms of the data we've seen. The other thing to note with Oracle Fusion Cloud ERP is that it has more of an open architecture that can more easily be integrated with other types of systems and solutions. Now, if you're looking for more information on the pros and cons of Oracle Fusion Cloud ERP, Check out my review right here on my YouTube channel that provides the pros and cons from an independent and tech agnostic perspective. Coming in at number one this year, which is the same as last year's number one, is Microsoft Dynamics 365 FNO, and the FNO stands for Finance and Operations. The reason it's number one again this year is largely because Microsoft D365 appeals to such a large customer base. They generally focus on mid-market and larger organizations. So while SAP and Oracle tend to focus on just the big companies and NetSuite and Odoo and others tend to focus on the smaller companies, Microsoft D365 sort of straddles between both. They cover the mid-market as well as larger organizations. So it's a product that can scale, but it's also not too much overkill for a smaller mid-sized company that might want to deploy technology. The other reason why Microsoft is number one is because First of all, it is the number one most selected software by our client base, but also because it is a very flexible solution. And it's also a solution that has a familiar user interface in that Microsoft look and feel. 
It's also an open architecture that can integrate well with third-party solutions. So these are just some of the reasons why it's number one on our list. Now, if I were to focus on the negatives, the things that might hold back Microsoft D365, I would say that the biggest negative is the value at a reseller ecosystem. They really have no control over their ecosystem. There's a wide variety of discrepancy in the qualities and the strengths and weaknesses of different VARs out there. So you really have to be careful in choosing the right implementation partner because there's quite frankly, too many of them out there. But all that being said, that's enough to land Microsoft D365 at number one on our list. And if you're looking for a more detailed review of the pros and cons of the functionality of the software, I encourage you to watch my video right here that dives into my independent review of the software. So those are the top 10 systems in our top 10 list, but there's a lot of systems that didn't make the list that you can make a pretty strong argument should have made the list. And in some years past, they have made the list. Some honorable mentions worth noting would be UKG. UKG is Ultimate Kronos Group. It's the merger between Ultimate Software and Kronos. And they've provided really a best of class sort of HR and workforce management sort of solution. So if you're not looking for a complete ERP system, but you're really honing in on HR and workforce management, UKG might be a great option. Another honorable mention goes to Palantir. Palantir isn't an ERP system per se, which is why it did not make the top 10 list, but it's more of a platform, a workflow management solution that can help tie together multiple systems. And in fact, you can watch my independent review of the pros and cons of the system by watching this video right here. Another one is ServiceNow. ServiceNow is oftentimes viewed as a pseudo ERP system, even though it's not a full-blown ERP system but it's oftentimes used for service-based organizations and customer service-driven organizations. And you can watch my review of that software in this video right here. And then finally, Snowflake. Snowflake is a sort of a business intelligence tool on steroids that takes business intelligence to another level. It could be a great alternative to traditional ERP systems, but because it's not a complete ERP system, we did not include it in this year's ranking, but it is an up and coming technology that you might wanna consider. And then of course, the other honorable mentions would go to Sage X3 and Acumatica, two very strong solutions that were in the top 10 last year and they fell out of the top 10, mainly because we had two new entrants that moved to the top of the list, but there are still two strong solutions worth noting. So I hope you found this information useful. And if you're looking for more information about software options in the marketplace, as well as best practices to make your digital transformation more successful, I encourage you to read our digital transformation report. It's a report we publish each year that highlights the strengths and weaknesses of different software solutions in the marketplace, as well as implementation tips and best practices. You can read that report by scanning the QR code right here in front of you, or you can go to the links in the description field below. So I hope you found this information useful and hope you have a great day. All right, that is our top 10 list of the top 10 ERP systems for 2024. Uh, there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover in that list, and we're going to bring some of it to life here in just a moment, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting 
to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 136. My name is Eric Kimberly here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just played for the audience here our top 10 ERP systems video for 2024. Uh, what were some of your thoughts and were there any surprises or anything that caught you off guard or just anything worth noting from that top 10 list now that you've seen it? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I know all the time you put into doing those um, independent reviews, and I don't think a lot of people realize how much work that is because there is so much biases kind of in the space, specifically people sending you types of things um, because of your following. So thank you for putting together that truly independent um, and and um, completely transparent list. There's obviously no paid placement in there whatsoever. I would say even if people push you, you're less likely <laughs> to, right. to include them if they're, you know. That's very true. Right, if they're being pushy. Um, but these are truly based on our, our client recommendations. And, and just real quick from a logistics standpoint, if you'd like to actually get the um, the white paper copy of this list, you can go ahead and scan the QR code or the link is down in the description. Um, and then also you can pre-register for our 2024 digital transformation report, which is our bigger playbook that we will release um, later in the year. So you have an opportunity to kind of do a two birds, one stone, Two stones, one bird. Kill two birds with the same stone. There you go. I think yeah. that's it. There you go. <laughs> Between there the two go. of us, we'll figure out all these yeah. cliche phrases. <laughs> Either way, just down, you know, head head over and download the report. So talking about some surprises on here, there was some shifting um, as I'm nerding out on ERP lists. Um, but I want to talk about Epicor coming in at number five specifically. So this is a completely new contender on our list and it actually comes into the top five. So what happened there? Well, it's funny you should ask that because if you would have asked me, say 12 or 15 years ago, if I were doing top 10 lists back then, I would have had Epicor really high because, you know, Epicor has historically been and had a very strong product, especially in the manufacturing and distribution space and, and retail as well uh, with Profit 21 and some of the other uh, systems that they've acquired and developed over the years. But the reason they fell out and they, and they sort of weren't in our top 10, in fact, this is the first broad top 10 list that Epicor has been, has made the top 10. They've been in our top 10 for manufacturing and our top 10 for distribution for sure, which is where they focus, but they've never made it into the overall top 10. And part of the reason is, is because um, they went through a rough patch, in my opinion, a few years ago, maybe about a decade ago, where there were uh, the company was changing hands of, of ownership with different private equity groups, buying and selling the, the company. And along the way, they sort of, they continue to invest in the product and they've always had that good product, which has been the continuity, but they sort of gutted a lot of their ecosystem you know they neglected it i guess you could say they didn't uh they didn't treat their partners well there's a lot of disgruntled partners in the space and they really were sort of a product only company i'm, I'm exaggerating it there weren't only product but their their main focus was the product and they they in my opinion neglected a lot of the the intangibles of what it takes to build a, a successful software company and so uh that's changed in recent years they've sort of you know gotten some stability financially they're back into growth mode. Um, they've got a new leadership team. And I just feel like they're they're headed in the right direction as a company. 
um, the product itself have continued, the various products that they have have continued to evolve and um, improve uh, over time. And now they're sort of, it feels like they're starting to put all the pieces together, which they hadn't done well, you know, maybe a decade ago. So that was, that was the big reason. And, and quite frankly, we're just seeing more and more companies in, in our client base that are selecting uh, Epicor. Um, and which is a large, you know, that's one of the main criteria we look at is how often is the product selected? How often is it so, uh, implemented successfully? And some of the other criteria that I mentioned in the video as well. Absolutely. Well, congrats to Epicor. That's very, very exciting. I know they're excited um, to kind of be on that list. And so knowing that, I want to talk about kind of the two titans because it was a bold move to not put SAP S4HANA into the top five, which many of your community on YouTube is now kind of rioting against, if you will. Um, so so what were your thoughts about not only moving SAP S4HANA out of the top five, but you actually moved Oracle up um, in the top two. So what kind of was your, your methodology and thought process there? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'll caveat all this by... Um addressing proactively what I know is going to be some criticism. Um, uh, two questions I sometimes get on social media is, um, do you know anything about SAP? Uh, you must not, because if you're not putting them in the top five, you don't know anything about it. Uh, and B, do you, uh, do you hate SAP? That's another thing that people will often ask me. And a dirty little secret that I know you know, and some people listening might know, but a lot of people don't know, is I actually started my career as an SAP consultant. I, that's where I learned ERP. And actually like SAP as a concept, is, is, a, is a possibility. But I think the problem with the S4 HANA product in, in particular is there's just a lot of troubled implementations that we're seeing in the marketplace. And you can't help but take that into consideration, no matter how good I think S4 HANA might be in the future or could be for a lot of organizations. The reality is a lot of organizations just aren't realizing the potential of S4 HANA partially because it's a complex product and it's going to take a lot of time and money to implement. There's a lot of risk associated with that. Um, but it's also a maturity issue. There's some maturity issues with S4HANA. It's just not, it's just not there yet. I mean, it's just not where ECC was or, or is in terms of all the R&D investment over decades that, you know, ECC had been around. And that's understandable to some degree. I mean, of course, S4HANA, a newer product, is going to have some new stuff, some great, sexy new technologies that ECC didn't have, but not everything that, in terms of the fundamental core ERP functionality that was in ECC, has has sort of made that transition over to S4HANA. And then you add to the fact that S4 or SAP has sort of shifted strategies over the last decade, and instead of building their own products and having a fully integrated suite of products, now they've gone out and acquired more of a best of breed approach which is adding complexity and risk to their implementations. So success factors and concur and Ariba, for example, are just three big systems uh, that they went out and acquired. Business objects is another one. So they went out and acquired these different companies and, and integrating those systems is not easy. And that, that adds to the risk and complexity. So we look at implementation results and the implementation track record as of right now is not one of the best in the industry. And that's part of what's pushing uh, SAP down in our rankings at the moment. And so let's talk about implementation um, success and the adoption success, because that is the reason for another kind of controversial, if you will, um, 
uh, ranking on our list, which is Workday that came in at number four. And a lot of people don't consider Workday as a core ERP system, but you talk a lot about kind of the, the advancements in their functionality as well as a key implementation success rate. So that seems to be a big reason of why Workday is actually in the top five instead of SAP S4HANA. Would that be kind of a correct observation? Yeah, it, it's in my opinion, correct. I, I think a lot of people listening though, and I'll speak on their behalf because I've seen it on social media, uh, not just in this year's top 10 ranking, but in past years, there's a subset of people that think Workday just shouldn't be in the top 10 at all, or even up for consideration because it's not a real ERP system. And I guess it depends on what you mean by a real ERP system. If you are looking for core financials and some HR functionality, some basic inventory management, that is sort of a light ERP, I guess you'd call it. Uh, if you're a complex engineer to order manufacturing company, is Workday going to be the answer that gets you there? Probably not. But if you're a financial services company or a you know a distribution company that has some some fairly vanilla um, you know ERP types of needs, then Workday could be a, a good consideration. And they're continuing to add to their capabilities, as you mentioned too. The same can be said for um, for Salesforce. Um, last year, the last ranking, we had Salesforce as a product in the top 10, but this year we changed it a bit. And now we have the Salesforce force platform in the list, not Salesforce as a product, but force as a platform, which is still Salesforce, but we're talking about the platform in general. Some might say, well, that's not an ERP system. Okay. Yeah, technically it's not, but you can use that platform to piece together and put together different apps that will create an ERP experience for your organization. Whether or not that's the right answer for an organization is a different story. For a lot, it is. For a lot, it's not. So it just depends on what the needs are. But it is enough to get um, consideration or a look, in my opinion, on the Salesforce side as well. And and that's really the point, right? That's kind of your it depends philosophy is what what it works for for your organization as an ERP solution. And I think it's great that you you bring in kind of these quote unquote, non-traditional, even though that's obviously evolving that conversation in the industry, which I think is a good thing to have kind of that healthy competition around being able to choose. Um, so those are, those are some great things. And, and it all, I chuckle a little bit because number one is D365 for two years in a row, which is excellent. But often the, the critique we get most is from the Microsoft team about things we put out, um, specifically Great Plains or sun setting systems. So a lot of times you get the feedback, Hey, you don't like Microsoft yet every, well, the last two years, I should say, they've been number one on your top 10 list, which is not, you know, you usually do a lot of shifting in that list, but they've kind of held strong in this position in the last, um, you know, couple of years. Uh, so what's your your reaction to that? Do you find it as hilarious as I find it? Yeah, yeah it's hilarious and ironic all at the same time. Um, you know, and that's true for any vendor, by the way, you know, I can you know, pick a vendor and tell me to make an argument for or against it. And I can, I can do it. I think I can do it pretty well. Um, and, and, you know, software vendors, they don't like hearing the dark side of their own product or they don't want to be told that their baby's ugly. And so when you say their baby's ugly or there's, you know, sort of a dark side or a, a deficiency in their product. And by the way, when I say that stuff, it's not that I'm attacking the product or I think it's inferior necessarily. It's that you just, as a buyer, you should know that, yes, go ahead and buy that software. I'm not even trying to change your mind necessarily, but know that there are gaps there. Um, not because you want to be paranoid or scared, you know, back to your opening segment or back to our opening segment about, you know, should you be, should it, should an ERP implementation scare the hell out of you? No, it shouldn't scare the hell out of you, but 
it should you should be scared enough and and skeptical enough that you're looking for risks and gaps in the software and things that might go wrong because you have to know what those things are to be successful. So that's really the reason why I do it. But you know, the software vendor industry is used to their carefully curated and fine-tuned marketing messaging. If you deviate from that, they just it just it's almost like they start to to glitch. They they don't even know what to do. Because uh, they're so used to hearing the echo chamber of how great their software is. And when someone like us comes along and says, well, it's not perfect, though. Here are some gaps you should be aware of. They they just don't know how to deal with it. And usually they attack. It's their, I don't know, it's it's the only thing they seem to know to do in terms of how to address that. And not all software vendors do that, by the way. But but uh, in the Microsoft community, that, that seems to hit a sore spot when we talk about sunsetting Great Plains and forcing people to D365. They, they don't seem to like us talking about that, even though it's the reality. Most definitely. Um, you know, it, it it's a, a great list. And, and I want to mention a few things about the list just outside of the core top 10. You do go through some honorable mentions. And I want to mention that you do top 10 lists by industry, by business size, by area of expertise. You do best of breed systems. You do best implemented systems. So if you're not seeing exactly what you're looking for in this core area, or you might identify as a smaller or a mid size SMB company, or even looking at SAP S4HANA as an implementation that's in progress, which was a lot of our client community as well. Um, I encourage you to go to either Eric's YouTube page or our YouTube page at Third Stage Consulting Group and search what you're looking for, because we have a variety of independent reviews. Um, and you also talk about those kind of new evolving um, best of breed solutions when it comes to integration, like Snowflake, which we've kind of seen burst on the scene with Palantir about the importance of that interoperability. So looking at those different kind of niche-based opportunity systems um, as well. So yeah. definitely a, a great list and um, a great overall approach to creating kind of transparency around the conversation. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the theme or the one of the main takeaways from this year's top 10 list is that even though we call it top 10 ERP systems, the word ERP is becoming a bit blurry, you know, as, as we talked about with Workday and Salesforce, you mentioned Palantir and Snowflake, which are sort of like more of a inter interoperability sort of model, not true ERP or traditional ERP, but interoperability. You've got uh, open source and low code, no code options. So there's just all these different subcategories that are sort of blurring what ERP means. And I think that's important to know because there's a lot of, it means there's a lot of options. It's not the traditional ERP system that you thought of 10 or 20 years ago. Now the categories are sort of shuffled and there's a lot of gray area there. So you just have to be aware of what your options are, which is the good news. There's a lot of, a lot to choose from a lot more than there was even just five or 10 years ago. Yeah. And kind of the theme of this episode is really, you know, getting clear of and aware of what you want and what your objectives are and how you measure those objectives and how you secure um, risk mitigation around those objectives and ultimately select the right system that's that right for your is your that is right for your business, that it depends type of approach. Um, so thank you, Eric, for putting this together. And again, just a reminder, if you'd like to pre-register for our 2024 report, um, you're able to do that. That will be available at Stratosphere, as we mentioned. Um, we'll actually have some copies available for you to kind of review with Eric, especially if you have the VIP ticket, you're actually able to have an experience of talk to him about that. So you can head to stratosphere2023.com. 
um, to register for that. And then also download in the link below this top 10 list if you are interested. Uh, so thank you, Eric, for such a great overview. And I'm always excited when the top 10 lists come out because everyone has um, such great observations. Speaking of those observations, if you disagree or agree, we always want to hear that in the comments. As you heard me mention earlier in the episode, um, we do take those into consideration. And I asked Eric those and we have a conversation around it, which is the transparency in which our movement here at Third Stage supports. Um, so definitely want to hear from you in the comments as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear the feedback on the top 10 list or anything else we've talked about here today. So thank you in advance for that, that feedback. And uh, thank you for another great episode, Kyler. And thank you to the audience for the great questions and engagement throughout the show. And uh, as always, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms, as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, we put out new episodes every Wednesday. So be sure to check us out and uh, hope you have a great week in the meantime. And we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Um